Hello and welcome. It's the TetraCast, our regular, seemingly weekly podcast. We're almost to the end of May and into the June from from heaven, from hell. Depends on your perspective. We've got so much stuff coming up in the next you know couple of weeks from every single developer, uh, it seems like, and every single publisher. And the pile just keeps getting added to. And we'll be talking about that uh, this week for sure. How do we feel about going into this crazy June that no one expected? feels like each of our podcasts next month are just going to be extra sized because like it's not just like everything's around the same e3 time frame but it's kind of spread out a bit it's going to be crazy it's going to be fun and the the thing that makes it most difficult is because in some cases we we hear about stuff being added to the pile like for instance we're going to have a major talk about sony's big playstation 5 gameplay software reveal next week but then other stuff that we always already knew about cd project doing a a reveal for cyberpunk coming up in the next month and baldur's gate 3 and other stuff and we hear about the summer of gaming what new events are falling under that label and it's just it seems like everyone is trying to make a table and tabulate exactly how what's happening and when and where to expect where from who it's i know we'll talk about this later but uh, I know we'll talk about this later, but like next week before our podcast, like a couple days before there's the PlayStation 5 event, and then the summer of gaming from IGN starts like the day after that. And then next Saturday, which is when we normally record our podcast, there's the Indie Live Expo, there's the start of the Guerrilla Collective, there's Paradox Insider, which is a part of Guerrilla Collective, there's the PC Gamer PC Gaming Show. There's the games uh, that are future gaming sh- future game show all on Saturday. So like maybe we should actually oh maybe God. just do our podcast on Sunday instead. Um, seriously, uh, so yeah, just to, we gotta do. <laughs> because there's going to be a bunch of announcements, you know, all throughout Saturday at different times. So yeah, there's a lot this next week. And we thought this summer would be like quiet, <laughs> different, wishful thing. Well, it is different, but it's not quiet. But before we get into that, as always, we're going to be talking about what we've been playing leading up to this crazy summer of the generation end and start. So obviously, the big release this week is Xenoblade Chronicles, which I think we all have a uh, different opinions on. And we some of us have already played it, some of us are new to it. But we've also been playing some other stuff leading up to that since that only released yesterday or the day before, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, I guess we'll just go around the... Uh, the room here uh, to talk about our non-Xenoblade uh, impressions before we get into that major discussion. Uh, Adam, I know you've been talking about getting into a couple Paper Mario games that you hadn't tried out yet in kind of in preparation for Origami King coming out also in not too long, just a couple months. So what are your impressions on Paper Mario Color Splash? So um, Paper Mario... Sticker Star, and I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but Sticker Star is the fourth game in the Paper Mario series, and I felt that it's one of the weirdest and honestly worst design games I've ever played. It has some really weird mechanics and how it uses the stickers and how it uses how it limit, limits what stickers you can hold and how many things you can hold and how they are used against bosses. Uh, to note, things are an item in the game; they're literally called things. Um, Capital T things. Yeah. And I'll explain that in a minute if you don't know. But that game, is I did not like it at all. And because of that, when the fifth Paper Mario game released, Color Splash, 
on Wii U, and it seemed to be a very similar. It seemed to have some very similar elements, just from reviews and uh, the marketing and whatnot. With Color Splash, I with the announcement of the Origami King, uh, I just kind of figured Color Splash is one of the only Mario RPG games, including the Mario and Luigi series, the Paper Mario series, and the original Super Mario RPG. Color Splash is like the only one I hadn't played, whether or not it's actually an RPG or not. But I just sort of decided, you know what, I'm just going to try it just so I can speak to it on what it is rather than what I perceive it to be. And um, so I've played played about half of it. uh, The general premise for a Mario game here is that you go to this new island and I forget what the island is called, but the the uh, gimmick to everything is that everything is like paint themed. And uh, you see that the city that you land in has basically been drained of its color by Bowser, of course. And so ultimately your job is to collect the six giant paint stars to refill the paint and basically bring color back to this place. And... So when this game was revealed, they didn't call it an RPG. They called it an adventure game. And after playing it, it makes sense why they did that. So just bigger perspective, the the game structure is actually structured similar to like Super Mario Bros. 3, where there's a world map and there's, there's different zones, like different levels, like a Mario level connected by dots on the world map. And so... It's it's generally linear, like you go from one dot to the next, but sometimes you can unlock like two or maybe even three at a time. And so it branches out in like which order you're supposed to do them in. And so like each of these levels, it's more puzzle focused than like RPG focused. There's not a lot of like dialogue or story, but what there is a lot of is um, various puzzles in terms of um, platforming and different uh, different things you do with the thing items that you pick up. Yes, they brought things back, which when I saw that, I was like, uh, I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe this. But, um, and then like sometimes you'll run into an area and you'll get like partway through it and then you'll realize for some reason or another, you can't complete it yet. You need, you need to either have found one of the, one of the big paint stars before the next part of this level becomes available. You need a certain item to get through. And that actually feels almost like a point-and-click adventure game from you know from the '90s, where you 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 pick up items and you have to figure out where to use them. That makes sense. Like and King's there are battles, yeah, like King's Quest. Like for example, you get to an area and you see a bunch of uh, toads. Uh, they are trying to un unclog a a uh, one of the warp pipes, and the warp pipe is filled with a giant turnip. Uh, it's just silly Mario stuff, right? And in order to get past that, you need to get a giant plunger to do it. And so, like, you need to figure out where that is or how to get it sort of thing. So, yeah, it feels like a King's Quest adventure game. There's another spot where there's a door that's locked and you need to find a spike, like a spike that fits into it. So you got to figure out where do I get the spike. So, yeah, it really feels like an adventure game. There is the combat system uh, is still present. Uh, and there's still a fair bit of it, but it is it, it feels like it's sort of a side focus though. And it, it's very similar to Sticker Star in that uh, you collect stickers, or I guess they don't really call them stickers, but you collect cards in this game. And each attack that you do 
consumes one card. So if you want to use a jump, you have to have a jump card to do it. And that alone is a little bit tedious. One thing that makes it slightly better than Sticker Star is that each card in your deck just takes up the same amount of room. Whereas in Sticker Star, like the better stickers took up more room so you could have less of them. And that means you kind of had to fill up your, your sticker book in that game with a bunch of weak stuff. And if you wanted to have a decent amount, so it's like, okay, that's slightly improved. And generally that's sort of the, that's sort of the overall vibe I have with color splashes. They kind of slightly touched up a few of the more egregious elements of sticker star, but there are still a few things that are, are really tedious. So that's what I, I was going to ask. If you thought sick, if you thought Sticker Star was just awful, you mentioned last week that it was like a really bad game that you don't like at all. How bad is Color Splash? Because when I agree, when you when you said when you just described that the attacks are like these consumable card items, I'm like uh, I, I immediately am just like I'm never playing this game. I don't want to do that. That sounds tedious as hell. So it's it's kind of um, one of the major issues with Sticker Star. With the thing mechanic, how it generally worked, like functionally, I'm not saying how this is how they would advertise it, but how it actually worked is that throughout the world, there were various of these thing items that you would pick up, but they took up so much room in your book that you there was no feasible way that you could pick up all of them. So some sometimes you would stick you would you would pass by a thing item and you kind of have to decide like, do I pick this up or do I just leave it where it is? You can always pick it up later. But the thing is, you had no idea which ones you were going to need and which ones were just kind of the extra ones that have some use in battle, but they're not ones you actually need. And the boss battles in that game specifically, every single one of them has a certain thing that basically makes the battle go from a very hard difficulty to a very manageable difficulty. But like I said, you had no idea which ones you would need. And so basically functionally effectively how it worked is you would run into a boss and you're like i hope i have the thing i need or else this is going to be a really tedious battle because he's going to stay powered up or whatever and what the game expected you to do is after like several turns on this boss you're wasting stickers and i'm talking about sticker star again just to reiterate you're wasting stickers you're you you basically have to like bide your time against the boss and eventually there's a clue that tells you you need an item that can do this and hopefully you know like oh that's that thing over in that place that i can go pick up and so you then you have to run away from the boss you have to leave that part of the game then you have to go back to where the thing item is and pick it up hope, hope hopefully you know it's the right one you figured out the clue or whatever then go back to the boss and then use it and you've already wasted a bunch of cards on them just trying to figure out what you need and it, and it becomes this extremely tedious process um so what Color Splash does, it doesn't necessarily fix this issue, but it just kind of sidesteps it. There is now an NPC toad that tells you, kind of gives you a, a big clue before you even leave this town. Like, I have a feeling you are going to need a blah, blah, blah. And kind of just tells you right away, you need this card or this thing because of a certain event coming up, whether it's a boss or a puzzle. And so that 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 does effectively solve to me, that the feels issue really like like a, like an awkward band-aid like ah oh, this yeah. design is so bad we'll just like put this toad here and there and now that now we've excused it like, uh... maybe maybe solve this in the best word it's almost just like sidesteps it just now it's like oh now you need to pick up this thing before you fight this boss now go do that and it's like okay i'll pick up the thing before i fight the boss and then i'll use it and it's just like 
that's not necess- that's not really interesting either. It's just, all right, you're just telling me I need this item, so I'll go get it. It's so gone from being tedious it kind of to turns being kind of bland. Yeah, it's just kind of trivial now. It's like, okay, what's the? This isn't interesting. And the thing is, you, I'm, I know in the in in Sticker Star there were some bosses that you could beat them without the thing. You would just be wasting way more cards than you would than you would have to, which is annoying, and it would just be a really tedious, drawn out fight. I believe some of these bosses in Color Splash, you have to have them, or else they are literally impossible. So it. It, I don't know. That's just not interesting design to me. Like, oh, I'll tell you which what item I th- you have to have and you better get it. <laughs> this is kind of a weird analogy, but what I think of is when I went into um, Final Fantasy VII Remake, the Hell House fight, and I didn't have, I only had like one elemental magic on me. So whenever I like, I knew what the weakness was, I'm like, oh, he's flying. So I have to hit him with thunder or whatever, but I don't have that. So I just got to wait and poke at a shield and like, I can still win this way. It's just going to take forever. So when not having a thing in Paper Mario, that's what it sounds like to me. And your your example there actually reminded me of another thing that is basically the same error, or the same problem um, that the that Sticker Star had. So I ran into an enemy, and it was like one of those ninja guys um, that in the Mario games. And this enemy cannot be attacked by jumps or hammers because he's too fast. But jumps and hammers, and there's many different types of jump cards and many different types of hammer cards, are like usually going to be like 80 to 90 percent of your deck. And what you need to defeat these enemies are certain items like fire flowers or pow blocks. And so, like, I ran into this kind of like this mini boss. It's like, oh, you can't use jumps or hammers. You need to have a pow block or a fire flower. It's like, well, I just don't happen to have any right now. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll run away from the battle and go go and go grab some and then come back and then beat them and that alone is a little bit annoying it's like not only can i do you have to have a certain card to beat them but you you literally have to have it it's not like it makes it easier just you have to have it and but what even made it more tedious is that the game kind of forces you to play like five rounds in that in that match before you can run away and so it's just kind of like it feels like it's wasting your time uh and it's just, I'm trying to think I know, how I would how, how would how would I have done that differently? I like the idea, the concept of an enemy like that, but I also don't like the idea of, of making it so arbitrary that you have no idea to expect it coming forward um, into it. I think I would just make it where it's like he has like a fifty percent chance of dodging any jump. So if you want to have a good time, you go into those fights with fire flowers or something. Like that way you're yeah. not absolutely SOL. Something like that. So like here's the th- here's the thing. I there are there are plenty of RPGs that have card based like battle systems. Uh one is, you know, like ba- the Bait and Kaidos games, especially Bait and Kaidos Origins, is like an extremely good game made by Monolith. When are we getting our definitive edition Monolith? Yeah. Port it to Switch. Well, it's, the thing is, uh, it's uh, it's also a Nemco game. So it's actually very similar yeah. to Xenosaga situation where it's Monolith self-created, but Bandai Namco kind of has the rights to it, so it's up to them. But um, yeah. that game has a card-based system, and of course, like certain battle cards are very useful. And sometimes there are certain bosses where there are strategies where, like, if you have these sorts of cards, then this boss will be a lot easier, or you can manage it in a better way. So. having certain cards be useful in certain battles like inherently itself can be done really well 
But these Paper Mario games sort of like are so uh, narrow in the sense that it's like you have to have this one or else this is going to be extremely tedious or potentially impossible. And then you have to kind of go back and go get it from somewhere else. Because you, um, where I, I feel like a game like Bet and Kaidos, from what I remember of it, yeah, certain cards are useful, but you can always, you can beat them other ways. And it didn't feel like it was so reliant on having this particular singular thing to do it. Uh, and Bet and Kaidos seems games like, have? I, I, I have also played that, but it's been like 15 years. So, but it's like, it'll lean you. You should use this sort of deck here on this fight, on this boss, or this sort of cards here. Or based on what you've described with Color Splash, which I'm very glad that you have decided to play like academically, so you can talk to us about it, so I don't have to play it. Um, <laughs> Same. Man. It's 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 just kind of like binary, where it's like you are supposed to have this card for this fight, and if you don't, go get it. It doesn't it doesn't suggest you should or inconvenience you if you don't, but you can still win. It's just you don't have it, you fail. Now, you to be fair, that there's only been a few fights like that here, and like I said, most of the bosses, they someone just tells you right away have this card. So it's you know, it's not necessarily well, it almost ceases to, to be like a game. It. It's just like the game just becomes listening to the toad, getting the thing, and using it. Like okay, that's that's engaging. I don't know based on how you're describing it. So just to be a little bit more positive. The focus on the battles and stuff it has been toned down from Sticker Star, and there is a little bit more focus on other puzzle elements. Like when you go through a level, you're, one thing you're doing in all these levels, besides figuring out... Well, the main thing you're doing in each level is to figure out how to get the paint star in the level, like these small... like you're, It's like a, like, a, like, like a Mario Sunshine star, whatever, you know, that's the main thing you're picking up. And so, like, that's the main thing you're doing. But you're also, there's also each level is filled with these paint splotches that you need to fix. You, they're basically uh, places where things need to be painted and you just kind of use your hammer to paint them really quickly. So it kind of feels like this sort of collectible thing, like make sure you paint all the, the splotches and you get coins and cards and items for doing that. And then there's other puzzles to, like, figure out how you get through each level to how you, um, how you get to the star that you're trying to pick up, kind of like any Mario game. And there's little story vignettes and things in, in various levels. And some of them are interesting. Like there's one level that has a haunted house that has these little ghost toads that you're trying to solve like their problem, why they're, why they haven't gone to toad heaven or whatever. And there's some like, uh, there's some amusing, interesting things like that. Uh, and like when it steps away from the battle stuff and it's more like this puzzle adventure stuff, like, okay, this is Okay. So you kind of um, just wish fine. they went it's... completely in that direction rather than straddling this line in some weird way and basically said like is no that... this isn't a battle focused game this is an this isn't this is an adventure game in the style of Paper Mario. How one how one person described it to me as I said when I said I was going to play this and I I I kind of agree with them and this is a very basic way to put it it's like it's actually a decent adventure game stapled to an absolutely terrible battle like system. And like, yeah, that's pretty much true. Like the adventure yeah, stuff is staple. fine, but everything with the uh, staple, I didn't even. Yeah, I just got the paper. <laughs> oh, there you go. Anyways, uh, it's just like, it just kind of feels like a weird jumble of ideas that doesn't necessarily fit together very well. I have one other small thing I need to, I want to mention, even though it's, 
it's more my fault, I guess, even though I didn't really, it, it wasn't really broadcasted or forecasted very well. So like there is this mini game part, but before I really knew it was a mini game, I entered this new level, like my first time into this level. I'm like, okay, what's, I don't know what's in this level. Uh, I'll just see what, you know, just I'm gonna explore it like you would any, any, any other level. And there's an NPC at the start of the level who's like, hey, he's like a shady, shy guy, you know, like a black market dealer, sort of, you know, amusing Mario thing. And he's like, hey, do you want the goods? Pay a thousand coins. And uh, I, I was like, sure, I'll pay a thousand coins. And he's like, wait, you don't have enough room in your deck. And apparently the game tells you, like, uh, he's trying to sell you 30 cards. And yeah, if you have room in your deck, you can pay a thousand coins for 30 cards. And I'm just curious. Uh, if you this based on what I told you right now, would you would you buy it? Like, would you clear room in your deck to spend a thousand coins to buy thirty cards? I would no. just on the um, I would just because like I figure as kind of a completionist where it's like, did you grab those various cards from the shady shy guy yet? I'm like, yeah, I did that. Like, I I would almost think of it as like a task to complete in the game. Yeah, actually, yeah. Now you say it like that, I feel like I would see that and go, ah, oh, that's what the game wants me to do then. And probably... Yeah, so that, that's why I was hesitant to bring this up. But, like, I kind of figured, oh, I'll just pick these up later. You know, like, I'll just keep it in mind and pick them up later. I don't want to leave now and clear off my, and sell cards to clear out my deck to make room for these yet. I'll just pick them up later. But then, like, like a few minutes later, the game throws you into a mini game where... It's basically, it's actually a repeat mini game from Sticker Star, where it's like, we're going to show you cards on the screen in like these various warped and puzzly ways. And you have to figure out which card it is. And then you have to show us which card that we showed you. And turns out the cards that he sh they show you are the cards that that guy would give you. And I'm like, oh, shoot, now I'm kind of just stuck in this mini game I can't beat because I didn't pick up these cards. Um, and so yeah, you kind of have to there's a chance you might have the cards you need just based on luck uh, if you happen to have the cards in your deck already. But what happened is basically uh, I was kind of stuck in this mini game. Like maybe I can beat it. Maybe I can beat it with the cards I have. And then turns out I couldn't and game over. And it's like, oh, no, I got to start all that over. And it's like a, a 10 minute sequence, which isn't a lot, but it's still just like, oh, that was annoying. Now I got to, now I'll go ahead and clear out my deck and buy the cards and try it again and go through the 10 minute sequence again and win this time. But it still just kind of felt like, tedious and yeah maybe the game kind of hinted at it like you should buy these cards right now but i don't know i just again it feels like you have to do this in order to succeed you can't do it any other way and i don't know it just so it's, it's kind of it's kind of the same philosophy it's just the thing yeah. I, the thing thing the, the thing thing capital thing lowercase thing in general yeah so it just it's kind of tedious and the fact that the mini game also just takes so long it's like in that, this long sequence with a bunch of dialogue and events it's just kind of like i gotta do all that again and you know it maybe only put me back like 10 15 minutes but it's still just tedious as you're doing it so so yeah i'm still playing it uh you know i'm about halfway through it i don't know Thank you for taking really the time like the to talk about <laughs> Wii U exclusive Paper Mario Color Splash. It sounds like an alcoholic anonymous. So amazing. <laughs> if you uh, if you don't want to talk about it next week, uh, you don't have to. We'll have plenty of other more interesting things to talk about. But I'm glad that you've given it a, a fair shot. I would like to say, 
that before the podcast started, uh, James and I were both saying that we actually wanted to hear Adam talk about it. So I didn't really think he gets the choice. I think next week, Adam, you have to talk about this. So I guess to finalize my thoughts, like in terms of what I hope Origami King has, and I think I mentioned this last week too, is like, I'm not, I don't think these Paper Mario games, they have to be in the mold of Thousand Year Door. Uh, like I think Super Paper Mario on the Wii, it's a it's a side-scrolling platformer, but I feel like it's still a good game in its own right. It's maybe not what people expected. Uh, you know, they, they wanted a direct follow-up that played the same way. But as like a spin-off game, I feel like the mechanics and the systems inherent to that game are sensible and fun, even if they're different. So like Origami King, it doesn't look like it's going to be the Thousand Year Door again, but I don't think there's been any indication that it has like these um these consumable attack cards or stickers and who knows if things are there. It looks to be a little bit different on its own right. Uh, Nintendo's not calling it an RPG. So I just kind of hope it, you know, whatever mechanics this game has just fit together better, that they're interesting in some way, that they're not just trivial. You have to have this to do this sort of philosophy that I've run into in the other, in these other two games. So I just kind of hope that it's, knows what it's doing and has an identity <laughs> so yeah like we'll it's not it's not going to be necessarily bad even if it still leans away from the rpg side it's just, you just want it to be well made on top of that like you don't dislike color splash or sticker scar because they aren't thousand year door you just dislike them because you don't think they're well designed those things are independent right, yeah. now i will say the thousand year door was like 15 16 years ago now so if I wouldn't mind it if they went back to that style just because it's been so long and it's not like they've exhausted it or worn out its welcome. You know, they they they, bid, they basically did two games in that style and then that was it more than 15 years ago. So I wouldn't mind it if they went back to that. But if they want to try something else, that's fine. I just hope it, it the design is interesting and and not as frustrating. So, yeah. All right, so one game that I've been playing this week outside of Xenoblade, and I won't talk about this too long, but uh, I play um, Guild Wars 2. It's kind of like my MMO that I go back to whenever they update it. And I normally I wouldn't talk about this just because it doesn't really have that big of a footprint and there's not a whole lot of interesting things to talk about with it. It's just kind of a linear story that they add chapters to every two or three months. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it this week is because it did something that I did praise Final Fantasy XIV for based on one of James's discussions uh, last month. So we t we had talked about how in Final Fantasy XIV, one of the things that's really impressed me uh, when James would talk about it is how it would like rope in characters and story beats from years ago and make them relevant in the current ongoing narrative. And then I actually mentioned how, or even if I didn't mention it, I was thinking about how Guild Wars 2 wasn't really that good at it. It would always introduce like new characters and beats and areas whenever it needed. And it didn't do a great job of making old old story stuff relevant. But then in the most recent update, they actually did. So to give a tiny, tiny bit of background, um, basically we have an expansion announced and the current like live updates are leading up into it. We're kind of like it's kind of like a preseason or whatever and it's char focused and char is a race of, of um like cat-like bipedal uh creatures in the guild wars universe which is kind of cool because so much of the story so far has been very human focused 
or uh, or focused on other races. And the Char, which have been around for like decades in this universe, haven't really had a story focused on them. I should and mention that done... uh, the Char in Guild Wars, if you don't know, they're not like they're not like anime styled cat boys. They're like more monstrous, oh, no. like feral, beastie type cats. Right. Just wanted to mention like that's what that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and they were um, they were antagonists in Guild Wars One and in Guild Wars Two. They're kind of like that uneasy ally sort of thing. Like they're brutal, they're they're monstrous, but they can be on your side if you've got a common enemy. That's kind of like the they're kind of like that rogue element. And it's that they're basically the 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 premise of the story right now is that it's a civil war between uh, good char and bad char. That's really oversimplifying it, but I'm just sparing the details because I'm sure no one's really interested in the minutia. Um, but the thing that they've done really well is so obviously you can play as one of these char, right? It's one of the races you can pick a character creation. And back in 2012, when this game first launched, obviously you went through like a basic uh, story talking about how your character came to be, which legion you were in, who was your war band. That's kind of like the, the environment that these guys live in is very like war focused, clan focused. You don't you don't grow up with your mom and dad. You grow up with, you know, your war band. That is your family. And there's like the the, the legions are like Ash Legion, which is like spies and stealth and subterfuge and the Blood Legion, which is like warriors and, you know, uh, brutal uh, kind of like the, the, the combat focused legion. Then there's the Iron Legion, which is like engineers, mechanics. They create like fortresses and tanks. So what they've done is that if you have played as one of those char back from 2012, 2013 in the original story, and then you got to pick like who was your warband, who were your allies, who were your nemesises. And then a lot of those characters had for so long and for so many years been dropped, like they were no longer relevant. You're now playing whatever the current story was in the recent expansion, who you, you know, these char focused characters are no longer important. They haven't been for a long time. But obviously now that we've got a story in 2020 that is focused on this race, what they decided to do is that if you play the newest update as a char, those characters have been filtered back into the story. So like if I'm playing as a human and I'm doing the, the newest update, they might have a character like a boss fight on the map where it just says like, this is champion char grenadier. Like he's just a generic nameplate. You just kill him and get your reward or whatever for whatever the event is. But if you played as a char, what they'll do is they'll filter in names from the, uh, the personal story from 2012 that you had personally chosen to like ally with at one point, but now they're your enemy. So it really kind of hammers home this char civil war thing. And for people who haven't played the game, you might say like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting, I guess. But it's just the, really the first time the game has really done anything like that. Cause the, to be honest, the personal story, that's what they call the base story in 2012, 2013. It wasn't well received. And it was kind of like the, the sooner they could drop it, the better. Um, usually the, starting at the first expansion in 2015 that's when the story really kind of became this well-focused better designed thing as a consensus and everything before that was kind of just like it's kind of like pre-realm reborn it's like yeah it's there uh it's, it wasn't cut off like realm reborn was but it was just kind of like out of sight out of mind like yeah you, you, that's just the prerequisite you go through that if you want but now this is the first time in a while they, they, that they've actually kind of roped it back in and made it relevant so it doesn't really like elevate the storytelling. I think the level of quality is kind of always where it's been, which I think is generally good, not great. But it, it's, I just thought the initiative to do that, well done and well designed. 
It's especially interesting because of uh, NCSoft or ArenaNet, excuse me. Like, it feels like they've gone through a ton of like structural and staff changes since the launch of Guild Wars. So the fact that they're roping something in from eight years ago or whatever with like, I assume is a largely different set of people making the game now, right? Is Yeah, you know, like... Do you think that's interesting? So basically, uh, a year ago, um, they were, or it was, it was last February, February 2019 is when they had their big layoffs. Uh, and since then, the game director for the game has left and like the studio head has left. And normally, like if I don't give you any other contacts that's, or context, that sounds awful, right? You're like, oh shit. But surprisingly, it seems like the game is on an upward momentum. And that's just not my personal bias. Like I think if you go to the Reddit page or if you go to like the official forums, I think you'll generally see that mindset because the updates are coming out quicker. Uh, the communication seems to be a lot more clear. And it's a lot of it is a black box. A lot of it is kind of um, speculation without or hearsay without a lot of clear data. But it feels like that um, NCSoft, who is the publisher of the game, and they obviously have games under their belt like Blade and Soul and Lineage. Um, and I think uh, Black Desert, maybe? I don't remember if that's under NCSoft's banner or not. But uh, I think it's kind of like they've righted the ship which seems like like they were at their lowest low when their studio had left. And he left just to um, on his own volition. He wanted to form an indie studio. Uh, but I feel, and then they announced the expansion and then the updates are generally being well received right now. So I think it's kind of on an upward swing despite all odds. So, Well, have they actually like officially announced an, like the, the expansion like title or anything or just that they're making one? They, it's, they've announced that they're making one. That's kind of it. It's it's not all but confirmed. It's not we assume there is. They said we are working on it. They kind of did it and as guess, low I guess key that, as possible. That itself, but I guess that in itself, as based, you know, just hearing that based on everything else that's gone with that studio recently, it's just kind of nice to know. Like, oh, I guess there is something that we're working towards, rather than just uncertainty. And they are also making some sort of console game uh, that we assume is an RPG, but I don't know if it's going to be an online game or a, or even a Guild Wars game. It might be a completely new IP. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see what that is because that studio has not made a console game. They've made two PC products. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Too, and that's it. Yeah. The, the ArenaNet's only made two games. One of the reasons they had so many problems was it looked like they were making a mobile game and maybe something else for years, but none of it panned through and a bunch of, it was likely canceled, you know, never announced sort of thing. And they just couldn't get another project off the ground. So hopefully they can, you know, it seems like they maybe have made some changes to try to uh, uh, maybe cut down a bit, focus a bit and see if they can kind of shape up and go in the right direction now. Well, we, we've seen like, for instance, Riot has been branching out from League of Legends in the last year two years with a whole bunch of new uh projects under that banner and i'm not saying arena that's on the same level as riot they're probably not even close but just the idea of they they, they have people that have been working on these unannounced projects for years which has been kind of their downfall in a lot of ways like you had said so i guess we just gotta have to hope that um something pans out because i think just being able to diversify like that especially as so many games nowadays have online components, whether it's an online MMO or a hub-based game like Destiny or service elements tacked onto single-player games, that 
I don't know. I guess there's a reason why classic MMOs are kind of hard to come by these days. Everything is more kind of diluted down into like these um, theme park MMOs, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, either that or either like Destiny likes or uh, Diablo likes, where it's like the core of the game is an online component, but it's not massively multiplayer. It's more, it's more rather a group of five, eight, ten people. And do kind of these bespoke instanced uh, narrative chapters or, or map exploration or things like that. And I think there is still an audience for that. Like we saw kind of how that Wolston game on Steam kind of exploded a, a few months ago as a, as a Diablo-like. So I think there is still an appetite for that. But I don't know if there's still an appetite for, for a while likes anymore. But I guess we'll see. Anyways, I didn't want to like go into a ton of detail on that but yeah guild wars 2 it's something that i go back to every other month or so and the most recent update did do a few interesting things with its storytelling where it didn't ignore that its original story happened it actually made it relevant probably not to the same extent or quality that final fantasy 14 does but hey they they did it for the first time in a long time so it was something i was impressed by so i also played xenoblade chronicles but before we get into that because i think we all have to want to chime in on that uh, James, uh, you have a few other games outside of Xenoblade Chronicles that you've listed here, uh, including Chronicles Cross and GJ Max. So I'll let you pick which is one of those two that you want to talk about. Um, I'll start with talking about DJ Max. So it's a bit more of a uh, seamless transition to the Xenoblade talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I've mentioned like many times on a podcast, I'm a big fan of rhythm games. And uh, I bought DJ Max for spec to V. I think it's V. Uh, when it came out on early access on Steam. Um, I actually bought the uh, PS4 version of DJ Max Respect back when that came out too. Uh, so if you aren't into rhythm games, then you probably won't understand this, but DJ Max itself, its gameplay is very similar to stuff like uh, IIDX um, or however you pronounce it. Or um, if, you, if you're someone that only played like Osu, it's similar to like Beat Mania or Osu Mania, that sort of stuff. Um, DJ Max used to be like the really big rhythm game on PSP besides like Project Diva in that it was like the one rhythm game series that consistently came over to the West with DJ Max Portable, Portable Second, Portable Third, that sort of stuff. And um, DJ Max Respect and Respect V is kind of a compilation title, kind of similar to how like Project Diva Future Tone, which is a port of the arcade game, is also a bit of a compilation of all the different if not the note charts, the songs from the series history, DJ Max Respect has songs from Portable First, Portable Second, uh, Portable Third, and it even has some new songs for Respect. And um, it also has its own DLC packs for like the original DJ Max trilogy on PC. It has like extended stuff. It has um, a few months ago, it got a DLC pack for a collaboration with uh, Groove Coaster. And just in the last couple of weeks, we got some free um, DLC uh, collaborations with Guilty Gear. So like we have some Guilty Gear songs um, like Marionettes and uh, Break a Spell that, are complete, that were completely free. They were just added to the game. And uh, DJ Max Respect, he actually has, uh, speaking of Riot earlier, there's uh, some of those um, Riot AMV uh, League of Legends songs are actually in the songs, like Get Jenxed and uh, I forget the name of the first one, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I've been playing it a bit more recently. Um, 
the thing about rhythm games is it's not like something that you play like binge on. It's something that if you only have like say half an hour to play games and you don't want to get into like a deep RPG, you can just load up a rhythm game, play a few note charts. Why would you not want to get into an RPG? Well, it's more about like you know what I mean. If if you only have yeah, half an hour, like half of that is just getting into the groove of things. And then once you're in the groove of things, it's like, oh, I probably shouldn't get too deep into this because I only have 15 minutes left to play. That sort of stuff. But um, yeah, yeah I've been playing difficult. it. Mainly I've been playing it for like a few minutes, like while waiting for online classes. Like if like on Zoom, I'll punch in the meeting code and then it'll be like another 10 minutes before i'm actually led into the class so it's like oh, i'll play some dj max while i'm waiting for it nothing really huge just uh recently finally cleared an 11 star uh, difficulty uh, six button chart which is pretty nice because um as much as i play rhythm games i would i'll definitely say i'm not particularly great at them except for maybe project diva <laughs> so getting better at it but uh pretty much all the um, that's all I have to talk about with DJ Max. It's, again, it's a rhythm game, pretty simple. So, having fun with it. Probably going to pick up some of the the uh, new DLC packs for uh, Black Square and the other one that I don't know how to pronounce. But mm-hmm. uh, the other main thing I played this week, besides the well, Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, has been uh, since I finally finished up Final Fantasy fourteen, I've been going back into Xenoblade Chronicles Cross. Uh, if you guys remember, like a few months ago, I was kind of playing Final Fantasy and Xenoblade Cross at kind of the same time. And I decided, well, one of these has got to give if I'm going to like actually play through it. So since I caught up on Final Fantasy and back playing Cross, um, I got my skill this week. So that's interesting. Um, How many hours definitely... are you into the game? 35 hours. Well, I got my skill at like 34 hours, but 35. Uh, it's definitely interesting for a few reasons. Uh, first off, I actually think that um, that the skill combat is... It's definitely a step up in what you can do in the sense of like, if you get a full party of skills, you can basically take out enemies that are like 10 levels above you or something like that. But... Um, I definitely think that the skills are actually less interesting than the on-foot combat because there's less synergy between your party. There's um, It's a bit more restrictive in what you can do with setups for like uh, combos and whatnot. And, um, but again, just first impression, I've only had them for like a couple of hours. What I do like, um, what I have been enjoying about Cross so far, um, so far this week though, is that um, especially... And I'll talk about this more later once we get to the regular Xenoblade discussions. But just reminding me of how much better the side quests are in Cross versus the original Xenoblade. I actually had this conversation with a mutual friend of mine on Twitter about how no wonder people were so like iffy on Cross and maybe even didn't give it a chance when they heard, oh, the main story isn't the focus, it's the side quests. When if you'd only played the original Xenoblade and you'd seen the side quests in there, of course you'd be like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Because most of the side quests in the original Xenoblade are kind of just throwaway, like, they're, they're padding. Well, I, actually, I, actually, I actually have some complicated thoughts on the Xenoblade's uh, side quests, but we'll, we'll go into that when we talk about it. Mm. I'm not saying that they're inherently bad. Like, I do think that there's some interesting aspects of it with, like, figuring out the times of day when certain side quests become available. But again, we'll get into that later. But, there, like, so many of the side quests in Cross 
actually have a story to them. In fact, I think pretty much all of them have a distinct story to them. Some of them have branching routes, depending on decisions you make during those side quests where some characters will live, some will die. Sometimes you'll have completely different quest objectives in the next um, side quest, depending on what you did in the first or in the first route of it and whatnot. It's, um, and then like affinity missions. Um, I definitely, before I started playing, I remembered seeing people say that the party in Xenoblade Cross wasn't as memorable. And I agree to a certain extent, but if you actually take the time to do the affinity missions and see how these characters interact, I do think that the, um, I do think that the playable characters in Cross are interesting. And I do think that there's a lot that the game does really right about kind of delving into each of their backstories. But the focus of the game is about the scope of the planet and the scope of New LA to a certain extent. So it makes sense that besides Elma and Lynn, that the folk that you wouldn't really have too much of a focus on the rest of the characters. They're you're just like hopping in and out, helping them do their things. You learn about their their um, backstories. You weren't you help them, but it it's just such a different experience compared to the rest of the series. And I just it seems I, like I, really I haven't played Cross, but it seems like it's more character focused and less pure story focused because those are two different things i wouldn't necessarily i wouldn't necessarily say that thing but uh i definitely mm -hmm. feel like it's more world focused rather than necessarily uh. story focused the characters are obviously a part of that world but it like mira in general just and adam's gonna be laughing about this feels like a living breathing world <laughs> in all the best ways but um yeah, been enjoying it. Uh, I'm probably about halfway through it. I'm like level thirty, and I just I'm gonna start chapter seven tonight. So I don't know. I, if I that... hope I, I hope when you're playing this game, these don't these these don't all feel like like surprising revelations because I pretty much said these same sorts of things back when I was playing this. You know, last year or whenever it was, several months ago like most of the story in the game are those affinity missions and it's not like 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 josh or like james said it's not like a, a direct a to b like narrative but just kind of like if you want to learn about characters and how they relate to the world like that's what all the affinity missions are for basically take the heart to hearts from the other xenoblade games and basically attach missions to those instead and they're basically become their side quests but there's that's where a lot of the story quote is and that's kind of the focus the game has which is kind of the opposite of the original game right but uh yeah and that's really enjoying it. Anybody, yeah yeah but i've been really enjoying it um i will say though that the emphasis on exploration and cross and the amount of mobility that you have in cross has been a bit of a hindrance when getting back into the original xenoblade especially the jump <laughs> Because it's mapped to an entirely different button on the uh, controller in Cross. And you also kind of have something almost like a moon jump by default in Cross. Whereas the jump in the original Xenoblade is more like a hop. So it's yeah, definitely... This, this, this is a small thing, but in Xenoblade Chronicles Cross, you can dash and you can jump. And you can jump high and pretty far. Uh, you can't do that in the original Xenoblade. You can't dash. And you can jump, but it's more of like a like a hop. <laughs> I'd say that the 
distance that you can jump and cross is probably like at least two and a half to three times the distance and the maximum height is, is about the same just to put in perspective so the fact that scales play such a big role in cross reminds me kind of like the xenosaga games where they had a specific battle mode where you would use like i forget the acronyms it's like it's one type of robot in the original game and then in the second game it's like a, a tier up where it's ESs, I think. I, I don't remember any of the names of them, but and even Xeno uh Xeno Gears had that sort of combat. But then obviously while mechs and mecha or whatever have narrative roles in Xeno Xenoblade one and two, you don't really play as them. So the fact that scales are a big so I say this based on your impressions having not played it myself, but it's just interesting that you have that combat mode at all in cross because that's something that's absent from from one and two. Even if it is pushed back 35 hours and more. Yeah, I guess the last thing I'll say, and actually this might be a good uh, transition to the Xenoblade, the Xenoblade original talk, but it really baffles me. Like, and I, and I am emulating cross, so I should stress that. I'm playing at a higher resolution than the Wii U would have supported. But the maximum resolution for Xenoblade Definitive Edition in docked mode on Switch is 720p. And especially once you get to playing it, you notice that what they showed off in the trailers definitely was showing off the biggest improvements to the visuals. And once you actually get start like start playing Xenoblade Definitive Edition, it's very clear that it is a remaster, not a full remake. There's places where the original assets are very clear and the world itself, the skeleton is still very much the original Wii game. Uh, but it still dips below 720p, whereas Xenoblade Cross, which for my money is still the best looking Xenoblade game, even better than 2, and probably the best looking Nintendo game, was a lot 720p as far as I can, as far as I remember on Wii U. And it just baffles me how a remaster of the original game can look on a resolution standpoint, looks so much worse than cross on the Wii U. Yeah. I've been playing it on a um, 4k monitor and it definitely looks blurry though. I do think that Xenoblade DE's art style kind of shields it from pure resolution issues a little bit. I should stress I that it still I looks fine. Because I did play, like, the original Wii version, even if, like, half of it was eventually on Dolphin with the same save file. And I did play up to uh, um, play up to Sword Valley on the new 3DS version. So it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. And I imagine it would look a lot better if I was playing it on in handheld mode on, like, my Switch Lite or something. But uh, because I played Xenoblade two times already, I figured I'd just uh, kind of take a yeah, more Yeah, let's set the stage here. So... So you've played Xenoblade start to finish before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I know Adam has, and he's also played the Definitive Edition uh, because he was able to do an early copy for, for site coverage. I'm about 10 hours into the Definitive Edition, but I did play the original game 10 years ago, which leaves uh, George. I think you're new to Xenoblade, right? <laughs> the the baby of the group and the least experienced. Uh, I... I'm about two hours in, so I've just found those canisters that I needed to find, and th and this the these two hours I have with this game is my experience of the series as a whole. 
So I I'm not a like too much about it, but I am really enjoying it. Uh, All right, without spo- I, without spoiling anything, have you seen the scene yet? You'll know well, what I'm I talking think about if you know. Nintendo Nintendo wanted me to see that scene in the trailers, so I'm, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. But have you seen it in game yet? No, not yet. All right, so we'll keep this uh, spoiler free. Um, but we will uh, talk no, about general I, I, impressions. I know what happens though. Okay, I guess we'll decide. Uh, I guess I'll just make an executive decision that um, I, I won't. I won't intentionally go into talking about big narrative things, but uh, I'll leave the door open that we might spoil. It's a very difficult spot because it is a very impactful scene early in the game, but it also sets up the premise. So it's kind of got that weird crossroads where it's like the premise of the game hinges on this, but it is also still a spoiler. Uh, so I guess if I'll just start out warning right now. If it's something that Nintendo showed in trailers, and it is a 10-year-old game, it's not like it's there's other spoilers right. in Xenoblade that are a big deal. And this is literally the first like five hours of the game. I don't think it's All necessarily right. yeah. a big Well, deal. let's just let's say it this way. Um, basically, Colony 9 gets attacked and... Basically, Shulk and crew decide that they have to get revenge on the Mechon. That's the premise. Yeah, I that's, think that's, yeah, that's basically, much. yeah, that, that's, that's the really premise right it. there. So, uh, I guess, George, since you're the one that's uh, new to this, how do you feel about it so far? I'm, I'm sure, I bet most of what you've done in those two hours has just been running around Colony 9, doing quests, killing things, getting used to the battle system. How do you feel about it? Uh, I was, I'm in a very similar situation that I had when I played Final Fantasy VII Remake, where the characters and story are already really hitting me, and I'm already really interested. I'm already really feeling it, as I should say. <laughs> it's uh, have you played say that You sort of sound like Shulk just because of the accent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, that's that's another point. I'm enjoying how British it is as well. Uh, that's a real change of pace. I think the only thing that jumps to mind is Assassin's Creed Syndicate. It was like a strictly English game, and that is awful. So hearing it actually sound genuine is really good. Um, it's quite difficult. I'm maybe like the least tactical RPG player maybe in the world, so having having this sort of system where it's automatically attacking for me, leaving me to focus on my arts is something to get used to. But so yeah, it far... Is a bit different. Yeah, it's but it, but it's like a it's a good difference. Same with Final Fantasy VII Remake. There've been a few moments where it has all clicked, and I've been like, "Oh, okay." So that's that's how that works. And I don't I don't know when you find out a game is nearly a hundred hours long, that it becomes very difficult to commit to it in my eyes, unless I'm like super super excited. And this was the sort of pickup where I was like, "Well, I know everyone else on the site loves it. I know it's like." Loved by everyone, so I probably should try it out. So I, I can't say whether it's going to get me for that long, but I definitely want to keep playing it and see how. Maybe just to hedge it a little bit. So I played an early copy, and I just decided, just because I could, and I felt like it was, I was going to basically do a really thorough completionist playthrough, as in like do all the quests, do everything, fight all the super bosses, basically exhaust the game. And my final playtime was 120 hours. But if you basically just do a moderate amount of side quests and a moderate amount of optional content, 
and really just like I'll just more more focus on the story and you know that's good enough for me you know that's obviously the thing that people really like anyway you know it, it's more like a 50 60 maybe 70 hour game but even then I think 50 or 60 is for, for like mostly main story stuff right about what you're getting which I know is still long but it's not like massively yeah, massively right. long so Adam Definitive Edition wasn't your first time playing the game, was it? No. So maybe 120 hours for completionist knowing what I'm doing is actually on the small on the short yeah, end. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Still long. And, and though it is worth mentioning that Definitive Edition has a few quality of life features, it def- definitely helps when you're dealing with those side quests. Like before, if you're looking for a specific item, and even in Cross, it's a similar thing. Where if you're looking for a specific like item node on the map. You kind of just had to run around. Like if you knew a specific area would spawn, you just run around with your like a chicken with your head cut off and just hope that the node that you picked up had the item that you needed. Well, in Definitive Edition, if a node that has something you need spawns, you'll see it on the map with a quest icon, which is something yeah, that's I, really nice. And I said this when I previewed the game a couple of weeks ago, like effectively what happens for side quests whether you're a completionist or you just kind of want to complete them as you go you know just as you do the main story if you basically run into the town area accept all the quests you can because why not right and then you go back out into the explorable zone your your map is going to be basically littered with with exclamation marks both enemies enemies that have drops that you need and the collectibles you need to pick up so it makes it just much easier to be like all right now i'm just going to run through the zone and kind of just you know, if you want to complete quests, sort of run from exclamation mark to exclamation mark to, like, take out enemies and pick up items. And, you know, it makes it a little bit easier, either whether you're a completionist and you want to do everything, or even if you just want to go through the story, it makes it just a little bit, you know, you're not so uh, aimless. Like, you're, oh, you're not, you're not looking through menus where it's like, kill this type of arachno at this part. And like, okay, let me find those things. Are they here? No, are they here? No, are they? Oh, here they finally are. It's just a little bit more uh, conducive, a little bit more streamlined in a good way. Though I will say it's a bit odd that, uh, and maybe I'm, I just didn't find the right option in the menu, but Xenoblade Chronicles Cross has an option where you can just equip your strongest gear to a character. And as far as I can tell, despite the various quality of life changes that Definitive Edition has, you can't do that in Definitive Edition, which is a little bit annoying. You can sort by like highest physical defense for armor or whatever, and then like equip whatever's at the top of the list. But yeah, there's no like auto equip. So I, I just don't know. To, personally, just to... I actually, uh, actually don't like. I'm gonna be honest. When I was playing through the game, I never even considered having like, you know, equip optimal uh, equipment like option because I I guess I wouldn't trust the game to do that. Like I, I more bespoke like, all right, I want you to wear these sorts of armors and these sorts of uh, these, you know, and this weapon, and I'll set these gems or these armors have these gems that that already are like somewhat. Some armor has like a gem slot you can put whatever you want in, and some has you know like a set gem that you can't remove. And also like I've picked, I specifically always used armors that didn't add any weight or low weight, just because agility is so useful in the game. So like just personally, like I just kind of you know, there's actually I would actually go through long sequences of the game not changing armor that much and i kind of set what i like and sort of kept it for as long as it was viable 
it's the sort of game where if you have if you implement good tactics, if even if your gear is not perfectly up to snuff, you can you can overcome that. And I actually kind of wanted to talk about that. There's some people, and obviously I don't think this is a, a big population of people because the game is so beloved. And just to step my, I think this game leaks into like my top ten RPGs of all time. Maybe not top five, but it definitely sneaks in the top ten. But there's some people who would say like a game that auto attacks like this one does can never be that great because they just want to be more involved in the in the systems at play in, in terms of combat. But for me, I actually kind of like enjoy the pace of this game in terms of when you go into a battle, what you initially do uh, in order to just execute your, your arts and your skills or whatever. It's just something that's different that you don't find in other games. In other games, it's all kind of basically about doing as much damage as quick as you can with as fast of a ramp up as you can in a lot of ways. That's not always true, but in so many, in so many other games, like even in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you know, kill the enemies before they kill you. That's all you need. In this game, like it's, there's a lot of what position do you encounter the enemy at? What arts do you use in what order? This is kind of an unavoidable comparison, but it's one that's made. And I think it's made with good intentions of how, how MMO like it is. And we've all got different experiences with MMOs. So when you say the word MMO, like some people are going to think Final Fantasy, some people are going to think Guild Wars, some people are going to think EverQuest, you know, and all those games are different already. So the comparison's already kind of flimsy. But just the idea of the um, the break topple day system, the idea of doing extra effects based on where you're positioned, or even um, certain abilities having additional effects if you use them after other abilities, like a lot of Dunban skills work that way. There's very it's, it's kind of cerebral in a way where it's not just this ability does a ton of damage or this ability shuts down the enemy. It's hey, I can I can topple the enemy with uh, or not topple. I can break the enemy with Dunban's uh, kick if I do it after his his slash ability. I forget what they're called. Um, or if I use the talent gauge on Ryan, I can gather all the aggro. And then I can use an aura and get everyone's uh, strength down by using his um, his purple ability. <laughs> you can kind of see how I think about the games here. I don't really think about like what the abilities are titled. I kind of think more about what their uh, what their inputs are, like what what's required in order to do the effects in the most you know in the most useful way. And to me, I don't know. I just really gel with that sort of tactical sort of thinking. So when I look at Xenoblade Combat, two... go ahead. I guess I'm I'm kind of rambling at this point. I really do enjoy it a lot. I have two comments. One is like a serious one and one's more of a silly one. Um, But yeah, a lot of like the strategy in this game is strategy in terms of like how effective you are in battle. There's kind of two components to that where one is like this preparation stage. It's like how you are setting up your characters, what characters you're using, what equipment they have. And later in the game, those gems that you put into into your slots are very important. Like they can completely change how much damage you're doing how often you're hit what if you can be blown over or whatever like blown down status if and how much you're like the agility gems are extremely useful and if an enemy has like a blaze technique that sets you on fire you can prevent that so there's one component of like this preparation stage it's not combat but it directly affects how well you perform in combat uh and you for especially for a later game and and especially especially if you're doing super bosses that is like crucial preparation um which to some people like you who are maybe calling it cerebral like that's what it is you kind of have to think about like 
party coordination and things like that. But then, like you also mentioned, in battle, which characters you have and like what order you do things is very important as well. If you just kind of randomly uh, do skills, that's not as effective. It might be effective enough in some cases, but it's not as effective as making sure you do the skills in the right position because some skills are position-based, you know, side or back, and in the right order, and considering what skills other people have. Um, I fought the super boss of the game, which is a level 120 dragon, and you you max out at level 100, and that 20 level difference is like huge. You have to overcome it. You can't just grind to to uh, to basically just to make it you know a pushover. You have to think about like how you how to tackle it. And I know this is kind of an extreme example, but you know maybe that point point paints the picture best. Is you have to know like. I have to do these things. I have to have these gems. I have to have these characters working in like smartly together to, to take out this boss. And one of the key things to do for that sort of boss is to raise your agility as high as possible because that level difference, you need to make up for it in your, in your chance to hit. And you also have to figure out how to topple them and also how to keep them toppled for as long as possible. So things like that is where I think this game shines. Even if it's not like reactive, it's more proactive in a way. Now the it's other thing I was going to say is spectacle. This... I was just going to say like comparing it to Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which has a lot of the same DNA, which I it's also a battle system I like, but maybe just slightly less cuz I feel like Chronicles 2 has this kind of focus on obviously the blades that you bring into battle with you and each of those has, you know, they have their different roles um and different elements which you then kind of like tag together and uh basically chain up. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 probably has a better sense of momentum in terms of you start out dealing, you know, average amounts of damage, but then you tear up into like those level three blade abilities, which then eventually uh, unlock those orbs, which you then burst from those chain attacks and you like, you ramp up the damage higher and higher and higher and higher, all while doing these like cool animations with your blades. It has more of a ramp to it. Whereas Xenoblade Chronicles 1 is maybe a little bit more, uh, it's almost- what? dry flat it's yeah it's it's almost more just pure execution you don't start low there there is a bit of a ramp but it's just more like do you spam backslash on cooldown or do you wait until both the enemy's defense is lower you raise your attack using shulk's um buff ability the blue icon uh you make sure you wait until the enemy has aggro on ryan or dunban then you get behind them then you do it that's gonna be way more effective than just initiating the battle with backslash from the front without any buffs like it's just more it's mmo-ish in that way okay you made me think of other things i want to say i gotta make sure i don't forget the things i wanted <laughs> to say first of all to, to most effectively play shulk you want to you want to do the uh his buff attack that raises his art attack then you want to do the side attack which lowers the enemy's defense and then you want to do backslash and then, but of you course, have to do all that, to do that without gaining aggro because uh, right. if the yeah, enemy has an aggro on you, you'll never get behind them. There you go. And that sort of stuff I just love. Right. It sounds like a complete nerd, but you hear me talking about like the blue ability, side ability, the, uh, the Ryan's world ability that lowers everyone's attack. Um, and then you can play Ryan like two ways. You can do the aura that oh, basically... I wanna, you, I'm going to forget what I'm gonna, I want to say. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but okay, I'll, I'll sum it up like this. I... As you can tell, I really don't really pace a whole lot of importance on like the flavor of the abilities. Like I don't remember what half of Ryan's abilities are called, but they, I know what they all do and when I want to do them and what in what order I want to do them. And that's kind of how I think about this game a lot in terms of combat. 
Yeah. So you were talking about Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and how it ramps up. And I actually think that actually causes some problems with the normal encounters in that game. I feel like the battle system in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is pretty good for bosses because of that. But it also makes the normal battles, just kind of the trash mobs, a little bit more tedious in that game, I feel, because you always start out kind of poking away um, before your arts fill up. Because you can't use your arts right away in Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Or I think maybe there's eventually ways you can, but most of the time you can't. So you kind of have to swipe out them normally a few times, and then your arts start to build. And like you said, it then starts to ramp. And I think that makes like normal battles in that game just not as fun. Because you all, you basically start the ramp, but you never get far enough to to actually like do the cool stuff, right? Um, and you have to do it every time. So that's just one comment that you're you're you're, you're that you made me think of. The one thing I was going to say before, and this is more of a silly comment, you were mentioning how like you don't care what the arts are called, you know what they do. It's like you know, it's like it, it's the information that you know that you have to do these things in order to most effectively play the game. I actually find it kind of silly, but. Um, Every time an art is used, a character will shout a certain specific thing for that art. And some people poke fun at this because your characters are basically shouting all the time. And it's if you watch it without any context, it seems sort of obnoxious. But what I've actually kind of found is uh, like that that the, what those characters are shouting is information to me. Like as I'm playing as Shulk or Melia or whoever, when I hear another character shouting a certain thing. I know, like, for some abilities, like, ah, that character is doing this thing, and I know just a split second before it happens what it's going to do. It's either going to topple maybe if, what, or whatever. Like, for example, Dunban, one of his abilities is, what he'll shout is, I fear not the jaws of death. And it's a silly shout or whatever, but I know when he does that, he, he is at low health, and if he loses all his health, he's going to revive and gain it back. And I think his tension increases also as well. So that kind of tells me I do not need to heal you right now. I don't need to waste time doing that because you shouted that. So thank you for shouting that because I know what you're doing now. <laughs> and things like that. Uh, I know I sound like a total nerd maybe, but like it's it's part of like the coordination of characters thing. And if you play enough, you start to realize like what certain shouts mean and what they're doing. So that's silly. I, that, I, I actually, I actually I don't think that. of it that way. That reminds me so much of... um when I was trying to do the battles for the Remind DLC for Kingdom Hearts. Um, yay, you met your Kingdom Hearts again. All right. I, I I don't even do it on purpose now, but just that specific example, I remember, I think it must be uh, maybe Xehanort? Maybe, yeah, I think it was Xehanort. He just says the same thing over and over throughout the battle, but it clues you into what he's going to do. It might not have been Xehanort. I think it was. No, uh, I think there's a few that do that. Yes, it was Zemnus. Thank you. Yeah, but there's actually. I actually have a really interesting. Uh, I actually have a really interesting uh, anecdote for this that I wasn't actually thinking about, uh, but it ties perfectly into this kind of conversation. So I was talking about Guild Wars earlier, right? I have a point to this. Um, they released the recent <laughs> patch without voice acting because of the COVID nineteen situation. And I was doing a strike mission boss, which is like a a micro raid or whatever. And normally these bosses have like audio tells where they'll shout something when they're about to do something. And you don't realize, like when I've been playing the game for years, like how much you start to rely on those when all of a sudden you just see like a text box appear above their character. And and then if you have NPCs in your chat log um, enabled, you you can read it. But by then, by the time you've recognized, oh, they're saying this thing, 
that means this is going to happen. I got to get out of the way or block or, or whatever. It actually made the fight more difficult to not have those. So audio, yeah. Kingdom audio Hearts, tells, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Audio tells and games are, um, I'm not too mind about them. First off, I think they're underappreciated when they're done well, but it's also one of those things where, as from an accessibility standpoint, people that maybe are hard of hearing, if a game is designed solely around those like audio tells, it's a little unfortunate that they're if there's not another way of like seeing that yeah. information. It's like I like it, but I also understand why uh, understand why some people might have some issues with it because it's like. I fully understand what you're talking about, the Xenoblade thing. Like, even, like, just yesterday, I was thinking I was thinking that very same thing. Like, whenever Elma would say something in Cross, and I'd be like, oh, that's my cue to use the one ability that follows up on her stagger so I can topple this guy. Like, exactly like Adam was saying. But, um, obviously, if you're looking at the monster or looking at her or when she's doing that, then you don't need that audio cue, but... I'm sure that there's got to be other ways to know when, well, to kind of put out, um, well, kind of. There should be an animation that accompanies it or some other way of conveying the information as well. On top as of much it. as people like kind of clowned on uh, Xenoblade 2's UI for being a bit cluttered, I do think that it had an optimal way of, sh of showing all of the information that you need to know to continue your combos on the screen so you didn't have to necessarily fully rely on those audio cues like if you wanted to follow up with a specific um attack that would give you a specific orb you could just see like based off of the number of circles like um well, number of uh nodes well, yeah number of circles surrounding the icon for the uh combo that you the character on, on the left or right yeah yeah so that was actually really nice, but um, obviously because of the intricacies of Xenoblade 2's uh, battle system, it was a it's a little bit different versus uh, Xenoblade 1 and Crosses from from a base standpoint. But point being, I like audio cues; it's really cool. But I also understand that there really does need to be at least an option to maybe have like something pop up on the screen whenever the audio would play because like. I think an option would be nice because I don't need it, but having it there for accessibility reasons would be probably a pretty good idea. Hey, George, did you play Xenoblade 2 or no? I forget. Uh, no, but I right. will probably do it because the the character's always... Like, Rex seems like quite funny. He, he was on Twitter a lot when the game released and I followed it through that, but I really didn't oh, have my own experience with it. Yeah. That scream he does, yeah. the one that like repeats. Oh yeah, people clown on it a bit. He's a good kid. He's trying his best. Um, I think the I, general I will consensus... say that Shulk, Shulk can definitely scream better than Rex can. <laughs> yeah, Adam Howden's a treasure. Um, I we talked about this briefly, but I actually really enjoy, even though it was kind of just happenstance, and the the fact that NOA was dragging their feet on Nintendo of America. I mean, was dragging their feet on this. I actually really kind of enjoy that. Out of that circumstance, Xenoblade uh, 1 and 2 now have this, like, Western European British uh, dialogue. like, uh, And it's not just using British VAs, but they actually kind of went 
semi-inventive with it in, in Chronicles 2, where each country, like each uh, each Titan had, like uh, the cat plays Gormot was the Welsh and uh, Morardane was Scottish. And they didn't have to do that. And you might say that that's kind of all arbitrary, but I actually just enjoy the flavor of it. It's better than just having yet another JRPG that uses um, like LA or Dallas voice actors. It's just something different. It just kind of helps round out the identity. And that might be one of those things that it's all just pure emotional and you can't really say, well, that's clearly better or worse on any, on any like measurable metric. But I hope they, I hope they hold on to that, even though they ha absolutely have no real reason to. It's just, I associate that this, this sort of vocal performance uh, with Xenoblade now. And I think so many of the voice actors more so in one than two, but also two are just really well acted. And like, I don't think there's outside of Ricky, who is more of a kind of, you either enjoy him or you don't based on his uh how he's written less how he's acted but i think the cast of one is one of my favorite in any jrpg like also just speaking on this general topic but like could you imagine like a dragon quest 12 released and then it just had like american accents like i can't even fathom it they finally voiced the protagonist a dragon quest game and it's like johnny on bosch or something like that <laughs> Please don't. No, the North. So, like, I, I mean, I find American voice actors, plenty of them are, are great. It's just having that variety and having games like Dragon Quest or Xenoblade yeah. or Nino Kuni having having English based voices as well. I think that's I think it's cool to have that variety. So I want to talk about side quests a bit because at its surface, if I was describing this game to someone like academically, I would say Xenoblade is chock full of fetch quests. It just is. And that's a, that's like a true statement. But for whatever reason, when I'm playing through this, I'm enjoying these quests way more than I did in Final Fantasy VII Remake. Despite criticizing Final Fantasy VII Remake's quests for being very fetch questy in many ways. And as I was playing this yesterday, when it released like late Thursday night or whatever, I was trying to like come to terms with why am I why do I excuse it here when I had such a problem with it in Final Fantasy VII Remake. So I was trying to just let me just plant the seed of the discussion here, but I really just kind of enjoy how the quests kind of serve as just a a, a motivational nudge to explore these like wide linear zones. Because one of the things I really like about Xenoblade is that it is a linear game; it's not a sandbox. But the zones are so wide and so open that you can you can blitz through the Bionis leg in 30 minutes if you want, or you can spend four hours there, depending on how engaged you are. And the, the quests, each one of them individually is just gather five of these things, kill four of those things, kill this unique monster here. But I just I guess I enjoy kind of saying, like, here's a giant map. Your own wanderlust will be a bit of a driving force to explore it. But you've also got these tasks that will reward you too if you want. And for whatever reason, I just gelled with that more than I did in like remake, where it's just kind of like go back to this warehouse a couple times and kill a few uh, dragons, and we'll give you a materia. Even though they're so okay, similar, so... I was just I had such a higher affinity for one over the other, and I'm still trying to come to terms with why I felt that way. You would probably okay, so really like that thought... cross. So my but immediate thought on this is that. Like I have two things. One, I'm just I'm, it, let's just say that 
Xenoblade Chronicles, just and this is maybe extreme, but let's just say it didn't have side quests. Would you have much of a reason to explore these big zones? I guess you're finding landscapes just for the point of it, but you also get experience for doing that. Um, like experience and AP when you find different landscapes or the secret spots. Um, and, you know, maybe fight a cool, unique monster here or there. But I would think if there well, were there's, no there's, side there's quests, also, less... there's also just like the um, the thrill of, you know, exploration, just like right, stuff that, that you're I'm not thinking, explicitly I'm not, rewarded for. I'm literally just thinking aloud here. Like, so quests do give you some incentive to explore more because it's like, hey, maybe I'll find some things or kill some enemies that fulfill some quests and give you stuff, you know? Um, so it is an incentive to explore. And maybe for something like Final Fantasy VII Remake, Explorate, you don't really do a lot of exploration in Final Fantasy VII Remake. It's very, mm -hmm. that game is very linear. And I don't really mean that as a criticism. I just mean that as a description that it's, you're, you're pretty much along a path. There's a little bit in like chapter 14, but, or 15, 14, 14. Um, 14. So when you do a side quest, it's almost like in that game, it's almost like you're inevitably retreading. Like you have to go back. And I guess maybe there's some of that in Xenoblade as well. But I guess, like, even if you're not a completionist, I think, you know, not a lot of people are. But if you collect a bunch of side quests and then you just see places on your map that you can, if you can fulfill them, you can go ahead and do that. And I think that's one place where the Definitive Edition helps a lot, like I already said. So, yeah, maybe there's just like an, in, there's an, an initial incentive to explore. And that exploration, the first time around anyways, it's not like a retreading a location or place you've already been, which is, I think, Final Fantasy VII Remake is going to be more like that. I'm just thinking aloud here, so I don't really... No, the word that... Here. I think the word... <laughs> no, yeah. When you said that Final Fantasy VII Remake's quests don't result in new exploration, I think that, I think that kind of hits at the heart of the issue with me, where it's like, in Xenoblade... You're going to explore anyways and to be rewarded for doing that by picking up a few tasks it just it tethers together really well where in final fantasy 7 remake you've already gone to the scrapyard as part of the story and now they just say well you can go back there if you want and kill a dog and we'll give you a materia they go okay i guess i can do that it's <laughs> it's fine but it's just it doesn't i don't feel as good about it and i also just kind of oh, like... like how uh, i was just going to talk more about how the quest in xenoblade tie into the um like the affinity system and for whatever reason when i was younger i kind of ignored this a lot like i didn't really care but now that i'm maybe more patient like i'm actually trying to like read about like oh this character knows this character they they meet each other here i I'll, when i actually see like an affinity link come up i'll pull up the menu and be like oh now these are connected or i, I read about like the 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 kind of like the the vie for power with the um defense force in colony nine with uh, emmy and raul uh, and the, and the older commander, I forget his name. And I, I'm not really going super heavy into it and being like encyclopedic about it, but I'm actually just kind of enjoying seeing like, yeah, she might just ask you to go to this place and kill a thing. But then the follow-up is actually part of it too, where you see like what results from that. And for any individual quest, since there's 400 of them, it's not like any, any individual one's going to have this wide sweeping consequence for it. But you'll do like a handful of them and then you'll realize, oh, this character move over here because now they're talking to this one. Like, I just think it kind of helps with the world building aspect as well. Where in Final Fantasy VII Remake, it's more just, you got your you got your material from me. That's it. 
When you say 400, do you mean side missions or main missions? Uh, it's it's something like 300 or 400 quests that are named. Side, they're all optional. Something like that. Oh, thank yeah. God. Because uh, like, these big numbers are just, just scaring me. But the thing is, is that you might go to like the refugee camp on Bionis Leg and pick up 15, maybe that's too many, a dozen random quests. But then if you just explore the leg, just like one pass through, you'll, you'll probably just complete six or seven of them without even trying. Yeah, I guess. And it also, it also tethers you into... Used tether before. Yeah, you used the word tether before. I think there's a way to play side quests like somewhat smoothly and there's a way not to if you think of it like a checklist then it gets a bit tedious but like i think it layers better like if you pick up a bunch of side quests and then go explore like it's kind of you're doing the same thing you're just exploring and completing side quests while you're at it and it gives you kind of an incentive to explore and find cool things and cool vistas and fight monsters and you're just kind of adding side quests into that mix whereas something like final fantasy 7 remake or maybe even final fantasy 15 um, maybe it, like side quests are like completely detached from anything else. Just do the quest. And that's oh, the between these three games, Final Fantasy 15 is, I think, clearly the worst. There's absolutely no but my, my issue is to want to explore is... frogs or whatever. Uh, okay, okay. I mean, this is going to be a tangent now, but Final Fantasy 15, just the side quest element of it, anyways, there are so many side quests in Final Fantasy 15 that are just variations of search the circle whether you're looking for dog tags or pieces of ore or car equipment or frogs you know it's just there's so many side quests there that just run around the circle and find these items and that was kind of tedious but anyways i'm getting off topic so yeah i kind of get what you're i kind of see what you're getting at where i don't completely denounce the quest in xenoblade and the definitive edition helps i think so you can tackle them in a more in a smarter way perhaps yeah and um i just wanted to say like I, I do wish a few more of the quests were a little bit more uh, tiered in terms of here's a major quest chain that unlocks like a cool optional whole dungeon. Like, let's say, let me just be completely hypothetical. Like you do a quest chain for the captain of the uh, refugee camp and you fight, you go to like this, like, I don't know, four or five story building in the corner of the leg that's been abandoned. And you go there and you tear up and you go through a dungeon with maybe a couple puzzles and then you fight a cool, unique boss at the top. Like, I wish there was a little bit more ramp rather than just, and I, this isn't the same sort of ramp as the combat thing earlier, but I meant like ramp in like scope or scale. Cause it doesn't really do that. Like the highest, most of these side quests ever go, at least in the first 20 hours is fighting an optional uh, boss, uh, a unique monster, which you could have done anyway without it. There's actually been a couple times where I fight a unique monster and then I find the quest and I got to fight it again. And that's kind of that's where why you say like, okay, this could have been done better. But okay, I do have one comment. This is actually kind of interesting. So Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition has a new epilogue and epilogue, the epilogue has actually two major components to it that are directly related to side quests, as in there's a character you meet in the epilogue, and I won't spoil it, and it's not a big spoiler anyways, but like, um, if you haven't done the side quests, or even if you just jump straight into the epilogue because you've already played the game, you probably forgot about it, but like, you meet a character, his name is Teelan. You probably maybe don't know who that is, but the characters, Melia and Shulk, know who that is, and they'll actually say, like, Teelan? Like, why are you here? And if you didn't do the side quests, you'll be like, who is this? Do I know this person? But if you, if you did the side quests you did, 
And there's also another side quest, which maybe I shouldn't say it. Um, there is one side quest in Xenoblade that is voiced. And I actually found that kind of interesting. It's like semi-important on a character level. And a character that appears in that side quest is also in the epilogue. So uh, maybe maybe Xenoblade would have been better if there were more quests like that that kind of focus on, like, or maybe there was more voice acting or more cinematic. Like this one particular quest. I know I'm being a little bit vague, but there actually are some end game side quests that have story el relevant elements that do appear in the epilogue. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to bring it up because, like, I hear if you hear someone describe their experience with the game, sometimes, you know, people on the internet don't have uh, ability to use nuance and, like, yeah, Xenoblade is chock full of dreadful fetch quests. And on paper, I could see, like, why you would think that. You look at the list and it's like, these are the Colony 9 quests, and look how many of them are just kill this, do this. And I'm, yeah, but then when I'm playing it, I don't find them to be like this huge detractor that is really souring my opinion of the game. I really don't think, I, if anything, I feel like they're bolstering my opinion of the game. Not saying that they're like inherently amazing, but just giving me an excuse for to to explore Colony the Nine, to talk to all the inhabitants, to see how everything relates to to go to go out and even even stuff like you get to buy on a sleg, you finally get you get Charlotte on your team. And one thing I've been trying to really do is when I first played this ten years ago. I was really kind of bad at branching out. I'd always just kind of play Shulk and that was it. But I was actually like, let me let me learn how to play as Ryan. Let me learn how to play as Sharla. The first one's more difficult than the second because Sharla is mostly just pick a target and heal or do a buff, at least early on. Uh, but having a, having like a, a, a list of tasks to complete kind of gives me an excuse like, okay, while I do these, I'm going to play as Sharla and figure out like, what what does she like to play as? Um, or, or Ryan or Dunban. So just kind of, rather than having to like do that in more uh, inorganic way, where I'm just like, I'm going to randomly run around and play as Ryan for no real reason. If I've got like a list of things to do in the Bionis leg, I'm like, hey, you know what, while I do this, I want to learn how this character feels to play. So just even in that kind of way, I found how those things kind of attach together in a very natural feeling way, at least to me. I think it's almost like a mindset thing is what I'm getting at. I, I've kind of approached the game a different way this time than I did 10 years ago, which is making me appreciate even these admittedly very thin, very fetchy quests are conducive to, to playing that way. I hate to say you're playing the game wrong if you don't do that, but I think there is a way to approach the game where the quests feel, they don't feel like a burden. They feel like a really good thing that I'm finding myself enjoying to do. George, have we completely like just smothered your discussion on this? You have scared me. <laughs> but I know, like, I do know what you mean, uh, because already I've kind of been bombarded with maybe seven or eight really boring tasks that are clearly setting me up to go explore a bit. And then there's one that's a bit more fully formed about a broken watch that is still fairly basic, but has a bit more nuance to it. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you to, uh, you must you must do all the quests. But I don't know, just do a handful of them and just kind of see how you feel. Talk to the characters afterwards and see like what they're talking about. And I don't know, just try to, try to immerse yourself as if you like. That one thing that Colony 9 does really well is that it, it came out on the Wii 10 years ago, remember? And yet it still has like this fully formed, realistic feeling colony. Maybe, maybe a little bit smaller than it would actually have to be to house as many people as it does, but... And when you see like what other sorts of RPGs were releasing around that time and how like HD towns are hard, 
Obviously, Xenoblade was not an HD game, so it's not flying in the face of that specifically, but it's a well-realized city that you just didn't come across. And even now, the scope is really impressive, I feel, where you can go up to, like, Colony 6 and look down and see Colony 9 or something. I might not, I might not have the locations very uh, exact, but they they do a really good job making it actually feel like that you're traversing up this giant titan, and it's not just... Yeah. I think about Dark Souls 2, where they're just like, you're at this valley, and then you go up an elevator, and you're in a giant fire keep that you didn't see from anywhere below. Like, it feels like just weird, segmented, like it doesn't actually fit together as the way it should. Uh, so far in Xenoblade, as I re-experience re- re- it, it definitely feels like it fits together exactly as they've designed it to. It doesn't feel like you have to, like, give them the benefit of the doubt. I think for quests, maybe one way that they could maybe capitalize on the potential that you're talking about and maybe avoid some of the other issues is just trim it down and add a little bit more focus. Like right now, it maybe is like a shotgun blast where maybe some of the some of the pellets are landing, but not all of them. And there's just a lot. There's a lot, a lot. And maybe it would have been better if rather than having, you know, literally in some of the some later games, l- later areas in the game, like literally having 20 or 30 quests in this area that some of them, you know, contribute to NPCs and things like that. Like, for example, in Frontier Village, Nopon Village, there's this quest line revolving around uh, the Pollen Works and, like, this big scandal that's going there. There's actually a character named Banna that this quest actually results in a really amusing boss fight. Uh, So, like, I sort of get what you're getting at with some of your more positive or less negative anyway impressions but maybe it would have just been better if it just kind of was a little bit more curtailed or dovetailed to like focus on more stuff like that rather than like yeah, cut, each, cut the number each, of quests in half i guess all, maybe 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 a more simple more uh maybe a more simple uh uh solution is all those like monster quests or or challenge quests or collect quests just like nix those because those ones don't have any story at all like right. if you nixed all of those that's probably like 40% of them, right? Or more. So those quests we've sort of ignored up till now, those ones are just literally like fetch quests. Like there's nothing, there's nothing else to them. So those quests, the, maybe, maybe there's still incentive to explore, but in terms of like any sort of NPC or character building or anything like that, there's nothing else interesting. So. I feel bad for keeping bringing up cross in this discussion, but I, I really like the way that frontier and Av kind of, like the as far as I rem, as far as I remember, there isn't really any specific quests to go after specific like tyrants or whatnot, except for the proficiency exam for the um, getting your skill. But on Frontier Nav and some of the nodes, sometimes like what you need to finish the recon for a specific node on the map is to kill is to find and kill a specific um, tyrant monster. But the way that works in Cross, I think, is a lot better than just the side quests asking you to go kill this one named monster in the original. Because well, first off, they don't exactly tell you where to find the ty- the tyrant specifically. They like you have a general like idea on the node, but part they're, like part of it is like actually having to find it. Well, here's the thing. I have two things. First of all. First of all, this discussion sort of makes me kind of see maybe more clearly like how things like 
translated or evolved from Xenoblade to Xenoblade Cross. You can kind of see like similar ideas, different execution, maybe like trying this, trying to trying the same idea in a different manner from the development team. But like Xenoblade Cross, what they did with side quests is they have they sort of segmented them into three different categories, which the original Xenoblade doesn't have any sort of category like that. So in Xenoblade Cross, <laughs> there are basic quests. I might get the names wrong, but basic quests are the ones that you grab from like the monitor. And those ones are a little bit more like fetch quests. And there actually are some that are just defeat a tyrant. And then actually, if you set that quest as your main quest, the map will actually literally show you where the tyrant is for that quest. But then there are normal quests, which those ones are more like side quests where involving NPCs and have a little bit more interesting to, uh, elements to them. And then there are the affinity quests, which are like the most in interesting and important and useful quests which involve like your party members. So maybe that was like their solution is like, well, I'll be perfectly than... honest. I completely forgot about uh, basic missions even being a thing. <laughs> yeah. You get them from that monitor. Um, yeah. So, so that maybe that was like their solution is maybe you're interested in doing these normal quests, but the basic quest you can ignore. So that's maybe that was the way they approached it. <laughs> yeah, they could. Yeah. Just in general, those, those, monster or collector search quests that Xenoblade 1 has, I, th I think they could get them to work, even though they are purely just tasks um, in the most literal sense. I think they could get them to work if they organize them a bit differently, like something where it's like, hey, if you kill these five wolves in this area, we'll unlock a landmark that you can waypoint to, or, or something like that, where they just make it as part of exploring a new region or something like that. One last thing that I want to talk about is that um, the art style. I admittedly am not a huge fan of the Xenoblade 2 art style. It's just too cartoony and bubbly for me. In general, I like it to be a little bit more grounded. Now, I say that because the other two are about to fall. I was playing Xenoblade Chronicles 1, and even though it's so in line with 2, I found myself like really enjoying just how it looks, especially in like the full motion cutscenes, like how expressive the faces are. Like I was specifically thinking about how angry Shulk can look or how um how like emotional some of the some of the beats with uh Sharla and the Colony Six story were at the early parts of the le of the Bionis leg. And that is stuff that did not come through at all in the uh in the original game, basically because of how simple the models were. So I kind of playing Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, I am kind of eating crow here and I'm coming around to the art style a bit. I think it's really expressive. I really like how some of the cutscenes uh, look and how they how they express the emotion that's intended in any given scene so well. And we were talking about, I think, um, at some point earlier in the podcast, how one kind of bugbear that a lot of games fall into sometimes is where cutscenes end up being characters talking in a circle. And Xenoblade does that so infrequently it does it like the required amount of time any any game where you have a party of seven characters is going to involve that some of the time but for instance there was a scene just a very basic scene in the ether mine where you first run into a Thauron, who is like a major character in colony six and like this cutscene shows like charla r racing down the ramp to go to go assist and fire her weapon and then um shulk and ryan follow up and like the entire scene, the camera is moving, it's changing, it's panning as the characters run down this ramp into this chamber where the, where the battle is occurring. And it's such a simple, low-stakes scene, but 
they basically went at it with way more way more force than they ever really needed to and that's not even to talk about like the what what they do with some of the cutscenes, like where you're fighting the um the mechon with these snake arms that's attacking juju later in bionis leg where there's just so much movement so much choreography like they did this with a wii game why did they go this hard but they did anyway and i really appreciate it for it and it just the combination of the old animations with the new art style i think works so well and it'll, it'll actually feel like a perfect pairing to having this game and chronicles 2 with kind of like the same degree of presentation paired together as they were or as they are now instead of being like this weird disparate art style between the two that you have to really uh, jump over this weird shift going from one to the other in either direction yeah like i think i might prefer if xenoblade the definitive edition like improved character models but sort of kept the more fantasy element to the to the character models like i don't want to say western but like slightly more slightly less cartoony and a little bit more fantasy element uh to the art styles rather than the more anime cartoony element but then if you if it was if it was to do that there would be a big like disparity between one and two but in either case yeah like the original game a lot came through the voices and like the character faces themselves are you know admittedly a little bit fish lips like oh he's yelling and i can see his mouth is open but he just kind of looks like a fish mouth or something <laughs> and and like you sort of your 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 mind kind of like fills in the gaps like oh he's angry right but the fact that you can see that more much more clearly in the with the new models i like like i mentioned in a previous podcast it feels natural like i like it and the fact that even if it is a little bit more cartoony it does fit in with the other game so I guess there's that consistent thing, consistency element going on, but like Which is I something said before, they didn't have for the um, Xenosaga trilogy, where you just yeah, kind of have to roll with the punches. punches. Like one, well, yeah, yeah, one looks different from two, looks different from three. If you want to play the trilogy, tough luck. There you go. Yeah, like in that game is even worse, or that series is even worse because it, it it's the same storyline with the same characters, but like Shion, who is like the main character, has three distinct looks, and that's just how it is like she just looks different in every game like completely different and so like all you know it, you sort of just put up with it and just sort of accept it then but here even if it's not shared characters it's like okay this is the xenoblade art style now you know it may not be the most interesting art style because it's kind of just cartoony anime but i think it works and i think it is an improvement just based on fidelity alone i really like it that, that's really <laughs> that it sounded like i've set up something big there but I, I just think it really pops and like i mentioned before I, it does feel natural like when i was playing the game i just sort of you know i didn't have to like come to terms with it, it just like oh this is xenoblade and so it, it like watching all these scenes again with these upgraded models like i know i've seen these scenes before but now they just i do think just things especially character faces it just helps a lot yeah, before you kind of had to have the voice performance and maybe some of the um, cinematography, for lack of a better word, carry the scenes. And then those were as good as they, those are as good as they've ever been, but now partnered with a much higher fidelity um, art style. It's just, it's, it's, it just brings it to a whole new level. And like, there's a scene I just did last night in the late ether mine where Sharla is like firing at an enemy repeatedly with her gun because she's like pissed. And like it carries through her face, her voice, the action. It's just like everything builds on each other and it just feels really good. And I'm not a person that values narrative in games a whole lot. 
I'm just the sort of person where it's like a, a, a game can be great without a good story, but a good story elevates it beyond great. And that's how I feel about Xenoblade. That's why I said it's probably in my top 10. It's got it's got the great character moments. It's got the strong narrative. It's got a really good, it's got an incredibly good, one of the best hooks at the start in terms of like setting up the premise. I'll see if I still feel as strongly in the back half of the game because I do think it gets a little bit loose, but that's, I, I'm nitpicking. It's like the, if the first half is 10 out of 10, the back, back half in my memory is 9 out of 10. Like incredible story. I really like it a lot better than the sequel, even though I still think the sequel is a good game. I wonder. So I wonder curious. if people going the other um, direction are going to feel I... that way too. Go ahead. Since I'm the only one who's played it, would you be interested in hearing me say some general thoughts on Future Connected without spoilers, or would you rather go into it completely blind? Mm -hmm. I think we should maybe table blind. it. Yeah, maybe next week. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe in a couple of weeks we can basically have this similar sort of discussion specifically on Future Connected. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard that this game was going to have an epilogue, like it was never on the table to play the epilogue first. I was going to play through the original game completely before getting to there. Because I, I want to re-familiarize myself. I want to clear the cobwebs. I want to go in with as strong a foundation as possible rather than just being like, yeah, I kind of remember who Shulk and Melia are. Okay, let me just say one very small thing, and it's going to be extremely, like, pulled back, like, extremely. All right. I was sort of worried that this epilogue was going to be, like, poor in some way, and that it would dilute the game. Like, it would somehow make my feelings worse because they added something that was bad. But I did not feel that way. So that's all I'll say. You thought it might add something, like, contrived or... Or silly or goofy. Yeah, or something, something like dumb or something retroactively makes something else look worse. But I don't feel that way. So that's all I'll say. Uh, I've heard it described uh, from, like, it's... It, yeah, I've heard, I've heard Future Connected described like something akin to like an OVA for an anime series. Where it's like something separated, but it doesn't, like you say, dilute the uh, regular experience. Though, okay, uh, I'm just gonna say one more thing. I think it goes into <laughs> a topic that feels like Xenoblade could have easily have gone into anyways. It doesn't feel like some weird tacked on. tacked on thing. Yeah. So one final thing. I know we've been talking about this game for like an hour now, but uh even when I was still in the in the prologue where you're playing as Dunban, one thing that was immediately clear was how much I just adore this game's soundtrack in pretty much every respect. The combat themes, the town themes, the uh, the energy scenes, the quiet scenes. Just, I don't think this game has a bad track in it. Like, that might be way too superlative, but I was just watching that cutscene with uh, Dunban, Dixon, and Mumkar, and I was just like paused and just listened for a bit. And I know it sounds really corny, but this game is... I mentioned how this game might have, like, in my top 10 of favorite RPGs. It's probably in my top three for soundtracks, if not number one. I would have to really think hard what soundtracks <laughs> do I like more than Xenoblade. And I don't know if I could clearly rattle one off the top of my head. Like, maybe Final Fantasy X would be, like, 1A, and then Xenoblade would be 1B. And even then, I feel like, do I want that to be 1B, or should I make that 1A? It's got a really wonderful soundtrack, and I think the arranged uh, versions as 
so far I haven't heard an arranged version and been like, Ugh, I don't like that. Um, everything sounds just as great as it always has. I so. think the arranged versions did a good job of like cleaning up the soundtrack. So it feels more like, it feels like the music is playing by maybe a little bit more so like by real instruments now, but they didn't like change like, like which tones, like different melodies and whatnot are being portrayed as. So it feels like just more like a cleaner version of the soundtrack rather than something that sort of like changes it up and changes the style that some soundtracks do where they like, oh, now this this melody is played by a different sort of instrument. So it gives it a different flavor. It, it kind of avoids that is how I feel. Yeah. I guess we're all in agreement. Xenoblade soundtrack is phenomenal. Yep. Are we? All right. Well, again, the thing is with me that this is why I'm, I am pleasantly taking in, and trying to, I'm trying to gauge my own expectations, um, because I'm I'm so so barely in so far. Uh, next well, week I'll probably be like, uh, oh, you'll hear some of that uh, Kingdom Hearts Shimomura DNA in the soundtrack, I'm sure. So, there you go. If you need a tease, George. I'm surprised you didn't have a comment on that. Oh, I did. The regular, I, I... The regular battle theme basically sounds like a Kingdom Hearts track. <laughs> the, there's one that I keep hearing, and it the, a funny thing happened with me. Uh, I got to a certain point, and then there was this specific enemy. I forgot what it's called, but it's like a it's like a wall glider or something like that, and it was killing me over and over again. And I think it's like a a rare a rare spawn because i had to google it because i was like i i have not seen much difficulty in the game so far and then there's just this one enemy killing me over and over and over again it's probably like a, unique a specific monster, yeah. battle theme i guess maybe just to just to state it descriptively the game has unique monsters and there's like more than 100 of them more than 150 i think which are basically like side bosses and also xenoblade is a type of game where like this is the most characteristic example in Gar Plane. You're going to be seeing monsters that are like level 70, 80, or 90 in that third zone in the game. You're clearly not meant to take them on yet, but that's just sort of the type of thing where it's like, oh, okay, these monsters in this area are way too powerful for me. You just have to avoid them for as long as you can, and then maybe come back later in the game to take them out. And that's the sort of game that Xenoblade is. It's not that like each zone in the game scales up enemy monsters like. You start out level five, and then they go to level ten and twenty. Why are so the on, monsters around the fifth city stronger than the monsters around the second city, or whatever? Yeah, that, like that's, a that's a common RPG. RPG like, that's, a com that's a classic JRPG joke. Yeah, like wow, the the, the NPCs that live in the final city in the game must be like way tougher than the NPCs that live in the first city <laughs> in the game because <laughs> because the enemies are like level seventy. But Xenoblade doesn't doesn't, and I actually like it how it's like there are going to be basically dangerous creatures in areas early in the game that you cannot take on. So that's just the, the kind of structure it has. But yeah, those unique monsters, there's a lot of them. You'll, you'll run into a ton. Any final thoughts on Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition? And we'll be talking about this more in the coming weeks because obviously, like we said, it's a long game and I'm sure many of us, if not all of us, will still be playing it by this point next week or the week after. I can definitely see myself playing for the next few weeks, which would be it would be stupid if I didn't like to to pay so much for a Switch game and then just like 
give up after five hours, that'd be really stupid. Now, I guess I know Adam and I and James a little bit too have been really piling on the accolades, but I do want to hear your honest opinion if there's something that you don't jive with. So don't don't feel like you're going to be bringing down oh, the vibe if there's something you... Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about that. Let us know if... All righty. I'm glad. I, I knew you would, but just wanted to state that anyway. <laughs> All right. So we'll move on to our Xenoblade discussion into the news topics of this week. And I kind of introduced a few of these early on at the at the top. And obviously, a lot of it is looking ahead to all the big bombs, hopefully dropping next week. But there are a few uh, cool things moving into uh, June from May. One of the ones that I was really looking forward to that has kind of been a bit uh, AWOL for a bit is Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered. So this was originally going to be coming out like winter, so like January 2020. But then it got kind of indefinitely postponed to an un to a nebulous summer date. Then we hadn't really heard anything for months. But they've announced uh, that it's coming out August 27th worldwide, which the announcement itself is obviously welcome because I'm really looking forward to this. But they kind of repurposed an old TGS trailer for the most part with maybe only a few minor differences in the new date. So it kind of just feels like a kind of an, an inglamorous delay of sorts. But obviously, I think we're all OK with that, especially considering the environment we're in. Who here has played the original? Played. Um, uh, yeah, you're going exactly into where I was going to go. So I've played Crystal Chronicles back on the GameCube. Uh, I think Adam has too. What about George and uh, James? Yeah, I I feel like I say this all too often, but I haven't actually played <laughs> Crystal Chronicles. I have not played Crystal Chronicles. Like I said, oh, Final Fantasy XIV was my first like proper Final Fantasy. <laughs> and you've really got into that. Yeah, the thing is, is that... Um... I'm really looking forward to this, and I played the original, but if you ask me whether the original is a good game or not, I honestly have a hard time answering that because it was so involved just to... So it's intended, I feel, as a inherently multiplayer experience. You form a party of four, you go through dungeons, almost, I kind of want to say Diablo-like, but they're not procedurally generated, they're bespoke dungeons. Um, and... I remember loving the art style and loving the music and loving the design. And basically you fight a boss and then you kind of have almost this neat or greed sort of system where you get a slew of options to pick from a roulette wheel. And then like if your character is a mage or a certain race, you might want to pick one thing. And then someone else in your party who picks second might want to pick another thing. Um, but the thing is, is that the amount of times that I've played this game with three friends is probably like twice total because one, I don't have many friends, and two, uh, you have to have this GBA, uh, you have to have this GBA um, link cable to your GameCube, and a whole bunch of weird, like the whole the whole joke. This is like proto internet pre YouTube stuff. Was like, you want to play Crystal Chronicles with four people? First, you got to make sure everyone's got their own Game Boy Advance and everyone's got their link cable, and don't forget the TV, don't forget the couch and the house to put it in. It was kind of a running joke of like what the tally was you had to have in order to uh, play this game. So just the convenience of being able to play this online, cross-play between Switch and PlayStation. Like, I feel like this is finally the game coming out as it was intended to have a real look at how good, how good is this game actually? And we'll finally be able to know. Maybe that's a weird way to, to approach it. But that's kind of how I'm approaching it is I can finally have a real opinion on this game rather than it being muddied down by this weird hurdle that everyone has to go through in order just to play it. 
Yeah, it, it's so it's such a weird, different game. Like, I don't know what game plays like it. And that's why it's interesting. It may be one of those sorts of games that's more interesting than good. And, but I actually don't mind that, really. Just to kind of set, like, a very broad premise of, like, how this game works. It's not like any other Final Fantasy game. It's really not like most JRPGs where you have, like, some sort of set story and you form a party and you fight the bad guy. It's more like... It's almost like an MMO or something, but more mission-based. So you, you, you. There's like a hub town, like a main hub town, and here you can do some shopping. There's some like very minor side quests here, and you, you, you set up your characters. You form. You basically that's where you basically collected your friends in the original game, and then you go out to like there's like let's just say twenty different areas in the game, roughly. I don't remember exactly how many, and then you go through a level. It's like, a, it's like a mission level based game from start to finish early levels in the game are maybe like five, 10 minutes. I am really estimating here. Later levels are quite a bit longer. And that's one reason why I never actually completed the original game is because completing those later levels takes a while. And then just the time commitment, time commitment was too much. You complete a level and during, in a level you can get drops and money and, and things like that. But the main thing is, is that you, Actually, I'm not sure if it was money, but the main thing is, is that at the when you killed the boss of the level, like Brian mentioned, you could get a stat up, and these stat ups were crucial. It's like the main way you powered up your character. Now you could get multiple stat ups from one boss, but you could only pick one at a time. And what this means is, what you'd ultimately have to do is you'd have to kind of do these levels more than once, to to basically power up your characters, and so it's sort of like this mission based gameplay, and. You know, a lot of the fun is just being a co-op game, like coordinating your attacks and all that. But it's it's got a very different structure and style to it than any other, like RPG, especially like Japanese Final Fantasy sort of game. If and, and if I recall correctly, um, all the levels have like different tiers of difficulty. If I remember right, the boss of the first level is a Malboro. and obviously, if you go, it's like the easiest level at the, at the initial difficulty because it's the first one. And you go in, you might get some basic drop. But then once you're in the late game, you can go through the level on its hardest difficulty, fight stronger enemies that are casting like Aga level spells to you and actually get like, what I'm getting at is that they don't ever, even the early levels, be, stay remain relevant to play through. It's like, oh, I want this, which I can grab, hopefully, if I do well enough in the first level on the hardest difficulty. So you don't you don't just go through a level and then you never have any reason to revisit it again. There's always reasons to go back all across the map to to replay and get new items and things like that. Yeah, and in terms of a in terms of the story side of things, each of these zones it's it's they're like separate stories and it's actually like presented to you like a storybook in a way, like here is the history behind this zone. And I remember some of them do get pretty dark and I actually saw some tweets about this like hey, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles is kind of colorful and cheerful on the top, but some of these zone stories get pretty dark. Like there's one zone that's like ends up like a silky graveyard, like like the aftermath of some battle that occurred long ago. Silkies are one of the races in the games and stuff like that. So it's not like a direct A to B storyline. The, the, the larger story is that the world is covered in miasma, which is like a deadly poison. And you take your little chalice that you have that's like a protective zone that you can basically take it with you to through these different zones and halt the sources of miasma. But the actual like storyline, there's no cutscenes really, and there's no like big antagonist or you know maybe some monster at the end. But it's basically like these little segmented little storylines that are more like 
world building than anything else. So that's the type of game it is from like a story. It's a collection of short stories. Right. So I'm really excited for this. Yeah. I'll 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 that, Troy. The fact that it's cross-play too, like, I, to be honest, I might get the PS4. I, I wish it was on PC. I mean, that'd be awesome. But I might get the PS4 version just because of trophies. Yes, I'm Dane like that. But the like the fact that I can play with someone who has the Switch version or even the mobile versions. And you can also, they also said you can like transfer your save. So if you wanted to, you could have like the mobile version to play it on your phone and then transfer it to your Switch or PS4 if you're playing at home. And, you know, I think that's cool. I don't and think for it's George and Dane's, uh, some of the gameplay mechanics obviously are conducive to playing cooperatively too. I don't remember all the details, um, but something like if you have two spell casters cast the same spell in, a, in the same area, they combine their effects. Or if someone casts fire on the floor and then you have a, a sword wielder like leap through it, they'll do an effect. I don't remember the That's details, cool. but they, they they combine in ways like that where it's like it's not just for people playing individually. There is actually a sense of cooperation required in order to really play it effectively. So there, there is, there is a skill ceiling, I guess. It's not just, someone has to carry the just, chalice. Yeah. We'll see if they change that. That was always kind of the, one of the weird criticisms of the game was that in order to move across a level, you have to pick up this bundle item that when you have, when you're carrying this, you cannot act and you have to carry it along the path with you. So basically three people are free to attack any enemies that, come at you while the fourth has to carry and obviously the fourth person can set it down and join the fight but then that means you're you're parked you can't move so i actually i actually thought that was just entertaining in a weird way like you're fighting a log and then you know just like normal friendly banter like pick up the chalice and get over here already and like some guys like fine fine i'll go back and get the chalice and then you go pick up the chalice and they'd like protect me don't let me die while i'm carrying this stupid thing it's just kind of it's just fun i think even if it is kind of like a restriction you kind of have to carry this you have to carry the chalice around because it protects you from the miasma is the reason for it how does it play as a single player game so the single player game is and this is actually okay the single player game how it works is that you have an NPC, a Moogle, carry around the chalice for you. Um, and so, like, you can fight while your chalice is sort of carried around kind of for you. The NPC wasn't very smart about it all the time, but kind of made it work. And you could carry the chalice, too, if you wanted to, like, put it in a, put it in a certain spot. Now, one thing about this remake that hasn't been clear is it hasn't been made known if there's any sort of local co-op. Now, I don't have personally have anyone to play it with locally, but like if it's online only, that's a little bit odd, perhaps. Like if you have two people over, like, oh, it can only, you know, you can't play it as like a local, like a two person cooperative game. Um, there's been one website, like the PlayStation.com listing of this game mentions couch co op, but no other place mentions it. I actually, I actually emailed the Square Enix PR basically saying, hey, can you confirm this or offer more information on it? And I did not get a reply, which is interesting because like either that's not like exactly right or maybe they just aren't allowed to reveal it yet or maybe they're just ignoring me, but it's just, that's just a weird, slightly weird <laughs> thing. But also this PlayStation.com website mentions that you can bring like AI units. Like it says like select from 30 characters to like join your party. So as a single player game, you could maybe do that now, but that hasn't been shown in trailers or anything is another one of those things that hasn't been described other than like a brief bullet point saying like select from 30 characters. So maybe 
as a single player game now, you, rather than having like a single Moogle, you have like a, a AI party that you make, which maybe would be more like a, a normal single player game, but they haven't really described that yet. So it's kind of weird. On paper though, that sounds really neat, right? Instead of grabbing three friends, you grab one friend and then two allies, you know, or, or if you or if another person joins you, three, two friends and one ally, like you always have a party of four, but you can mix and match AI and players. That just seems like natural to me, like how it should have been. Yeah, it's just, it's just weird that they haven't shown that. And it's just, it's like one, it's not even on like the official website or anything like that. It's just like the, the PlayStation.com website mentions it, but no other place does, as far as I know. The last time I played a cooperative RPG start to finish was actually Outward, the Canadian indie game from early last year. So I'm kind of itching for that again to like, obviously setting up times in real world to play a longer game, even if Crystal Chronicles isn't that long, it's still several dozen hours with an ally, with a friend, can be difficult, but I'm looking forward to that. And hopefully we can get like a real, a core group going. I think it'd be just really cool to have four people do the whole game start to finish as yeah, inconvenient like as that might be. Thing. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe the four of us should do it. Ah, there's no idea. Mm. I don't want to well, insist. Zero though. excitement from the crowd. <laughs> well, do we know if a PC version's coming? I mean, There's officially no they haven't said anything. I mean, it's like, so there's been a couple of games, um, like the the uh, Chocobo's Tales remaster. I forget what it's called, Chocobo Everybody. Most Square Enix games get a PC version eventually. That one never did. There's the Last Remnant situation where they took it off PC and then the new version never came to PC. Trying to think if there's any other examples. So Dragon Quest Builders Two got a PC version later. Yeah. So most do, but not all. I like. I'm not sure. Maybe like this game being online. Maybe for some reason they're just sticking to like PlayStation Network or Nintendo Online or mobile, like rather than PC servers. I mean, it is. I don't know. It just. But Dragon Quest Builders Two has like crossplay between PS4, Switch, and PC. So. It's one yeah, of those weird Enix arbitrary. Just go with it. It is what it is. Speaking of Dragon Quest, thank you, James. Uh, we have a new trailer for a new Dragon Quest game called Infinity Strash Dragon Quest The Adventures of Dai. Which, first of all, I don't know much about this series except that I watched this trailer and it is probably, this is going to sound like a marketing show almost, but this trailer is a really fun trailer to watch. It's super colorful. It's got wonderful music. It's basically sold me on the game. So it's only been announced for a Japanese release in 2021. And I, I think this is based on like a new anime property, which is based on an older game in the series. Yeah. Maybe Adam can fill me in the, on the details, okay. but I just want to so... say this trailer in a vacuum hey, before I, before I hand it off, I just want to say, if you don't know what this game is or if you're interested in it, just watch the trailer for The Adventure of Die, and it's it's such a fun, good trailer. I, I watched it a few times front to back. Yeah, so Dragon Quest The Adventures of Die was actually like a manga from like the early 90s or so. So basically Dragon Quest had a couple of games out by that point, and they made a manga out of it in Japan, and that did get an anime adaptation in Japan. And so, like, it was sort of like this anime manga spinoff of Dragon Quest. It's a Dragon Quest property, 
but it had like characters and story that aren't in any of the games. So it's not like it's not like an adaptation of the game. It's like a separate thing based on just Dragon Quest in general. And that was it, I believe, just a manga and an anime back in the early 90s. But then they announced, Square Enix announced recently that they're kind of reviving that in various ways. There is a new anime. As far as I know, it's basically based off the same manga, just a new anime based on it. So it's like a revival. And then there's three game projects to go along with that. This is the most interesting game project. This is a console game for Japan in 2021. To note, they haven't stated what consoles. So like next gen, if by that point, maybe just late current gen, who knows? Probably, it doesn't look like a graphically intensive game. So it could just be a late PS4 Switch game or whatever, but it doesn't have, we don't know consoles at all yet. And the other two games in the series are like an arcade game, like card battles, as well as a mobile game in Japan. So just to be honest, those aren't as interesting to me. But yeah, it's like there's a, basically reviving this old manga property and having a game or several games to go with it. And I guess one thing that's interesting about it is that it is an action RPG. So most Dragon Quest games are turn-based, besides like the, the heroes, Muzo-type games. So this is an action RPG. It doesn't look like it doesn't look super intricate, but I wouldn't really expect a Dragon Quest game to be super intricate. So it looks it looks fun. It looks cool. Yeah, one I mean, thing that's interesting I like it is that the music is not being done by Sugiyama. I might be getting the anime and the game mixed up, unless it's the same composer for both. But if, as far as I can remember off the top of my head here, Sugiyama has so far not been confirmed to be involved. He's the classic Dragon Quest composer. And while some of his like tracks in the original Dragon Quest games, like decades ago, were you know really good at the time, you know, there's an argument to be made of whether or not they fit well in the modern era, but more importantly, Sugiyama has sort of been exposed as not a very great person. He's very racist and homophobic, and I think even has said questionable things about the Holocaust and things like that even. So he's it's kind of like a stain on the... I love how you Dragon say, maybe not a very great person, then you yeah, just stop a bunch of things. <laughs> Definitely not. He is, yeah, basically the further he can get away from the series, the better. He, Yeah, he's he sounds pretty terrible. Especially he's so far... as whimsical as Dragon Quest. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good thing. So my only attachment to Dragon Quest is Dragon Quest XI, which I liked a lot. So I'm not like a series veteran or anything. Um, but I watched this trailer, and I know I'm going on about this, but like, man, I want to play that game. And I'm, I feel like I'm usually kind of... <laughs> I, I, I value more like firsthand impressions or like word of mouth more than I do like pure pure marketing as much as a hipster that, that might sound like. But then here I'm just admittedly being like, all right, this looks neat. This looks fun as hell. I want to play this game. So give it a look. I haven't it's heard you're excited about a game for like a little bit, actually. Like off the top of my head, I can't think of something I've heard you actively go, oh, I really want to play this. Well, here it is. Uh, Infinity Strash, Dragon Quest, The Adventures of Die, which we hopefully, it's 2021 in Japan, like I said. Hopefully we're not waiting too long for localization, but we will see. Wait, 2021? Yeah. Yeah, next That's year. ages away. That's <laughs> it's one year away. Next year. Uh, 
By the way, Strash is apparently a mix of Slash and Strike. In case you were wondering, apparently it's a classic move in the game, in anime, or in the uh, manga. I guess it makes more sense in Japanese than it does in English. I don't know the details of that, but I've heard people talking about it. I'm okay with it. Whatever. Allow it to be silly. It's a slash strike, is what it is. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, so uh, switching gears entirely. We talked about this kind of last week or the week before when we were talking about Witcher 3's fifth year anniversary. We, we As part of that, we talked about how the series has exploded in popularity from 2 to 3 and talked about how well Witcher 3 had sold. And basically now we just have it from the horse's mouth where the whole Witcher series has topped 50 million copies sold. So that's Witcher 1, 2, 3, and maybe it includes uh, the Gwent game. I'm not entirely certain. But even if it does, I can't imagine that that's a big percentage. Do you know for certain, Adam? I don't think... They, all they said was Witcher series. I, I'm assuming it's just going to be the first three games, but, you know, I can't deny it entirely. But in either case, like, Witcher 3 is 30 million copies of that. And then since 1 and 2 combined before the release of 3 had sold, like, 8 million, the fact that we're at 50 million now just is crazy and uh, looking at how far they've come. So deserved, how much, I think. How much do we expect, when the numbers get this inflated... Like, how much do we expect Cyberpunk to sell? Like, is it going to be 8 million, 10 million, 15 million? Like, I when the numbers are that I've big, it just feels like throwing darts. I think right. I mentioned it um, earlier, but um, it's kind of weird. But it's hard to remember, but GTA Five, like, the main reason why it sold, like, it's over 100 million now or close to it, right? Something like that. The reason yeah, why it's sold sure. so much is because of GTA Online. It's the reason why it's had this long tail life. But it's easy enough to forget that GTA Online wasn't in GTA 5 at launch. And similarly, Cyberpunk is going to be getting a multiplayer mode, but it's not going to be in at launch. So you, you see how big the jump was from Witcher 2 to 3. And it's like, it seems pretty obvious that Witcher 3 is sold around or over 30 million copies or something like that, which is just insane. But when you have a game that is sold that well, and then you have Cyberpunk, which is releasing in a similar situation to GTA 5 during a cross-generational leap where there is the opportunity for, let's say, if Sony, or even if, well, if Xbox is just going to be one skew and you can play it on a Series X and it's going to be the Series X uh, version if you own it on the Xbox One, but increasingly it's looking like um there's the potential at least for cyberpunk to be a gta 5 situation where the sales are already there there's so much hype and i would not be shocked if if the game itself land um sticks the landing right if um cyberpunk is kind of next generation's gta 5 or just stays on the sales chart for damn near forever yeah, I, it kind of draws to mind for me the expectation of when GTA V came out and sold so many, that was sort of like lightning in a bottle. So when Red Dead Redemption 2 was going to come out, everyone was like, yeah, like this is going to sell just as much, maybe more. And then it didn't, but it still sold amazingly. That's kind of my expectation. I feel like something about The Witch has just struck. Like Something about that has just people have latched onto and really really got into 
and then cyberpunk is still going to sell really 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 well but i i don't know I, I think i'm quite pessimistic about sales numbers but i can't see it uh beating the witcher 3 in my eye and that is a good point how red dead does also have an online component but even the Red dead redemption 2 is sold extremely well it's not on the same tier as gta and i think we could have a lot of speculative reasons about why that is what what do you need in order to break that crazy like 20 30 million threshold the fact that we're even thinking about that as a threshold is kind of just bizarre in itself yeah. but what would like, cyberpunk need to break that and i think an online component like james said would be a clear avenue to hit that if they can yeah. find, that that obviously would require the online component to be you know something people find worth playing because we don't even really know much of what it is but they have said so it is then coming, I also have it. I also have to wonder with we're we're going back to uh, The Witcher and GTA and all these comparisons. Cyberpunk is one of the most anticipated. Well, I'd say it is probably the most anticipated game this year with gamers. But I don't know how much like outside appeal it has. I don't really like. I, I just, there might be people keeping a better eye on this, but like, has it got? a really good word of mouth for everyone or is it just like core gamers do you think i would really have well first of all i want to say that i would say that the final fantasy 7 remake would at least be on the same tier in terms of oh yeah i, I mean like as of year. not released it's yeah yeah okay remaining in the year all right um the thing about cyberpunk is that my inclination is is that the tabletop game that it's based on wasn't that big a hit it's not like this is Dungeons and Dragons, the RPG. If anything, that's Baldur's Gate, which is much lower on people's lists. But somehow, I think they've kind of built up that um, that mystique the studio has. The uh, with the how well because did did anyone really know much about the Witcher series of novels before the Witcher one, two, or three? Despite yeah. not having that sort of widespread appeal they kind of willed it into existence. So the fact that they've already been able to do as gone as far as they have with the cyberpunk IP is just crazy. And it's remarkable. Um, As for how much broad appeal it has, I do think it being like a, like just in general, the genre cyberpunk, not the tabletop game is, is a broad, broadly appealing genre, the near future dystopian, whatever, transhumanism blah 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 so but but then again so is kind of like the western high fantasy the witcher was mm. so i think i, I would, think it has the same um potential i i think i think i'm i will happily eat my words i think it's definitely going to sell well like no matter what it's just that when, when we start approaching numbers of like 30 50 million it just it it just seems unreal to me that like a game yeah, I can't. That I know. I yeah, I can't wrap my hand around it too. Like, if it sells ten million, that's an insane number. But you'd almost think that that would be a uh, like a letdown, maybe. I don't yeah. know. It's like we're, we're putting a lot of semantics onto sales numbers, but like I hope it sells well. And... I I feel like it's almost guaranteed to sell thirty million, and that sounds crazy, but it's just like considering there's not that many games coming out this summer 
So like when Cyberpunk releases in September, it's going like people are going to be hungry for a new game. And like not to mention all the pre-orders it's probably already had. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I I would agree with that. I think I'm just I'm trying to uh be not I'm not even really being realistic. Reasonable. I'm just reasonable. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to start off at the lowest so that no matter how much it sells and how well it does, it will be good news. And yeah, we're, I'm we're not really like obviously. Of, uh, yeah, not yeah. Well, none of us are obviously like. I don't know. We don't have an investment stake, as far as I know, in how well this game does. But mm. it's just it's just curious to speculate. Like, how do games get this big? Yeah. And where 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 does it plateau? Because it but, seems like thirty million could be the plateau, but then GTA Five didn't stop there, like you mentioned. It just kept going and going and going into perpetuity. To maybe stick to the genre, I believe Skyrim is about around thirty million, according to this yeah. Forbes article I just googled from earlier this year. Oh, wow. So, so maybe that's about the scale we're talking about. Now, Skyrim has been re-released several times, but maybe Cyberpunk will be re-released, or in the, in the future eventually. I mean, we don't with with how like Xbox is doing its you know transfer to next gen. Do you call it a re-release anymore? But but yeah, that, that just to kind of another point in comparison is Skyrim seems to be around thirty million according to this Forbes article. So, so. in the same ballpark as Witcher Three. So I think we that's that's kind of where I think we should see Cyberpunk land. But well, I guess we'll reconvene in September or obviously by the end of the year to see. We know it's going to make a big splash, but how big is big? It depends on your frame of reference. So I did mention briefly Baldur's Gate. Uh, this is kind of just a little tease, but. Their uh, Twitter page did release like a little 40-second trailer for uh, Baldur's Gate 3, which we will see news of June 6th. Is it the 6th? Was... I think yeah. It's the 4th, I think, for the PS5. Nah, it's the 6th. Are talking about the PS5 thing? Or no? No, Baldur's Gate 3. So, oh, Baldur's Gate, yeah. So not really a whole lot to go there. I'm super interested in this game. Um I, I, I don't know. want to be, but I can't. It's, it's not consoles, is it? No, not yet. Not... Heartbreaking. Honestly, because that... that if they is still scary. around, you can play it on Stadia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I mean, unironically, get... if, there's, if there's any like sort of game that would probably work pretty well on like game streaming, it would be something like Baldur's Gate where it's turn-based. So, well, you know, actually, Gate like, 3, which is turn-based. The ever uh, two are obviously real-time. Well, the, what they really... That, like, when, I, when I when I talked to uh, Sven um, at E3 last year, the reason why they did the Stadia thing is because they really want to push the multiplayer component of this. And they basically don't want... They want there to be as few a hurdle as possible, where it's like, hey, you want to play this with me? As long as you have an internet connection, you can. Obviously, you still got to, like, have access to the game on stadia with whatever i don't even i haven't even kept on top of that like what what does the free free version of stadia get you what does the pro version get you you still got to pay for the games i honestly have kind of been left out of the loop because i haven't really been involved in it but pc and stadia i'm guessing we'll see console stuff soon uh eventually my guess is that on this june 6th Uh, thing we'll hear about whatever early access plans they have in terms of like getting access to the first act of the game or whatever, which is something that they've done with both Divinity games. So it's it's worked out well for them. So I'm not surprised that they're revisiting that uh, that model of release. 
Oh, Brian, I have the perfect segue here. <clears throat> Go ahead. Speaking of consoles, uh, on <laughs> June 4th, we'll finally find out about the PS5. There we go. How did it? Wait, I thought we already learned about the PS5. You know, oh, come cheeky. on. You know what I mean? No, it's because like I, I'm not gonna call it bad because obviously every single drip feed that Sony does is like voraciously eaten up. Whether it's just here's what the controller looks like, or here's the logo, <laughs> or uh, or or the Cerny like ASMR reveal of the specs or whatever. Yeah, but eaten up in a bad way. That one was. Yeah, but uh. PlayStation 5 event on June 4th uh, in the North American afternoon, European evening. Uh, we'll finally see our first look at PS5 console games. So obviously lots of speculation on what's going to be there. But I'm guessing we'll see some familiar Sony exclusives from the PlayStation 4 iterated on for this. And I'm you know, I guess I mean, we can, we can talk just... about, are we going to, yeah, are we going to see Horizon Zero Dawn 2? Are we going to see a God of War follow-up? Are we going to see new IPs from uh, Gorilla? Or no, it wouldn't be Gorilla because they'd be doing Horizon, but Honestly, what do you want to think... see, George? Well, I, there's one game I want to see. It's it's the Harry Potter RPG. That's all I want to <laughs> see. It, that, that's all I need. But if I was, the, the thing I think that Sony's going to do, and I've been listening to, a lot of um, podcasts while I'm at work, I listen to uh, kind of kind of funny uh, their stuff, and they kept they were talking about previous uh, Sony E3 events, and they mentioned one of them where Sony revealed stuff like Spider Man, Days Gone, God of War, and they had like they just like they announced them, and then slowly over the years they've been releasing them. It would not surprise me if uh, on June fourth they go, okay, so we've got God of War two, Spider Man two, Horizon Zero Dawn two. Uh, Days Gone 2, which, meh. But they, they announced all these massive games, and they're like, oh, they're not all coming out straight away, but here's what, here's like Sony's big slate over the next few years. That wouldn't surprise me. That sounds far fetched and like really hopeful, but for them to. Well, at least... from this gen. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, it wouldn't surprise me for them to do that. I feel uh, like. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I feel like, if anything's a safe. Uh safe game to kind of bet on it would definitely have to be horizon zero dawn 2 because yeah. I, feel, I feel like there's a reason why they're porting the original game to pc now and it's to give a boost in, in like an interest in the series and like with how well sure. horizon zero dawn like the first one did it's and considering the time when it came out early 2017 it seems right for them to have horizon zero dawn 2 as a either a launch title or a launch window title for the PlayStation yeah. 5. Just make James, sense. I know there's a I know there's a specific game that you're looking forward to that might be more out of reach, but um there's been tons of rumors about a Demon Souls remake cuz we know that yeah. um oh, yeah. Blue Point has been working on something that's supposed to be their biggest project yet and the biggest rumor has been a Demon Souls remake, which I think is possible and it definitely seems like certain uh, individuals like jason schreier is kind of like teasing yeah. it um i'd be absolutely like just I, I want to see a remake that adds in the sixth archstone because like if you go into the files like it was cut content they did work on it they just didn't finish it in time 
So if Blue Point could add in that final like area in a remake and like maybe patch, well, not really patch things up. Honestly, as someone that played Demon Souls last year, it doesn't need that much in a remake. It just needs to look better, maybe make the gameplay flow a little bit better, like bring it maybe closer in line with Dark Souls 3's combat or something. Yeah. But um, it's already a fantastic game. So just bringing it up to more modern standards, not in the sense of like gameplay necessarily, but graphical standpoint. And most importantly, keep the atmosphere of Demon's Souls. So I do trust Blue Point to do that because as someone that played the original Shadow of Colossus and then the remake, I think the Blue Point did a pretty good job of that, like kind of bringing it yeah. up like in um, to a higher fidelity while still looking. But um, yeah, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn 2, Demon's Souls remake. Uh, we might see the next God of War, I think. Yeah, I, I think so for that one. I think that's a big one. There's been rumors going around about a new Gran Turismo, possibly. Uh, oh, come on. You're British. <laughs> I'm sure it's just that you're a Forza fanboy or something. Uh, yeah, well, kind of. Uh, I, I'm not a big racer guy either, but I, I think another safe bet would be uh, the long-rumored Ratchet and Clank, whatever that is, because it's not clear whether that's like Ratchet and Clank Reboot 2 or Ratchet and Clank future well the next game in the future series but as a big ratchet and clank fan uh, i think i don't know because insomniac like now that uh sony bought them out you'd think that they'd be focused on say spider-man but uh i'm not sure like is insomniac big enough that they can work on more than one game at a time i maybe if that's the case then they might be might have been working on a ratchet and clank game and then while they're also working on spider-man not, but I do think Spider-Man 2 is more likely, even if they don't announce it here, yeah. just because they showed off Spider-Man running on the PlayStation 5. So it's like, hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> Honestly, like this, I I would completely own up, even though I have an Xbox and a Nintendo, I will always be a PlayStation player primarily. And I am a pretty, well, I'm not a fanboy because like Days Gone, for instance, I didn't really enjoy that that one at all. But like God of War, uh, Uncharted Four, that that Ratchet and Clank, all of them are some of my favorite games of this generation. So, like, I'm I'm holding it back now because I don't want to get too excited for what may be like not super exciting. But this, what happens next week is going to be mad, and I cannot wait to well, like like the podcast. like you alluded to earlier, like back in the PlayStation Four, maybe not alongside the original original reveal but early on in that console's life we learned about pretty much all of sony's heavy hitters we're just now within the next couple months we're getting kind of the last parts with last of us 2 and ghost of tsushima so you kind of wonder like early on in the playstation 5's life whether it's in this original announcement or within the first year of announcement like how many games are we going to be teased about that won't land until the back half of the playstation 5's life which, as a fan who wants to play things right away, maybe is frustrating. But I also do think, obviously, it worked for PS4, where it kind of says, like, all right, if I'm going to buy into this PlayStation 5 console, I know that you will be supporting it with these wonderfully made games, hopefully, for a long, long time. So yeah. if they announce God of War 2, but it's realistically not landing till 2023 or whatever, far out, I mean, you still got that that to look forward to. 
like you you know exactly why you bought into this console you're like yeah i know that i'm gonna have something exciting to look forward to every year that i own this thing so i don't yeah. i would not be surprised if we see a game or a couple games announced that are gonna have to incubate for a long time still yeah oh i think that's there's, what there's actually like one or two kind of sorry this actually Mega. sort of reminded me it's not exactly the same but it reminded me of like some, some of nintendo's switch announcements like early on in the Switch's life, they kind of pre-announced like, yes, we are making a final game for Switch. Yes, we are making a Pokemon game for Switch. We are doing Metroid Prime 4. We are doing Bayonetta 3 and um, maybe a few others. But like two of those games came out uh, eventually, Fire Emblem and Pokemon. And, you know, the fact that those were sort of kind of announced before they were announced, so to speak, like they just said they're making a game. This is sort of, I think it was mostly to quell like anticipation like because they had just recently released Final Echoes and Metroid Samus Returns on 3DS, just to kind of say yes, we are making them for Switch as well. But then, of course, we're Bayonetta and Metroid Prime Four. We still haven't heard a lick about. <laughs> I think they even said maybe maybe they maybe they pre-announced Animal Crossing too. Like they're no, actually, I don't think they did that one. I no, think that they one didn't. Was, that one was one that people were posting memes of like demonic cult summoning circles, like announced Animal <laughs> Crossing on Switch, and they finally did. But yeah, they announced that. There's been a few. There's been a few Nintendo book. announcements where they kind of the similar vein, where it's like this is coming, eventually, and we're still in the point of we're still in the waiting period for Bayonetta and Metroid. We'll see, I guess. I have to wonder what third party games are going to be there. Like Batman is the first one. Elden Ring win. Oh yeah, Elden uh, Ring. I'm, I'm guessing Elden Ring might be held to MS conferences, but I'm not certain exactly how that all works out. Um. But it will be interesting to see, based on this discussion, what will be announced next week that will be playable before the end of the year. Because that's the thing that's crazy to think about, is that uh, they will announce something that you will play before Christmas. Like, that's crazy. But then they will also announce stuff that will be incubating for a long time, like I said. So what's going to land in the first pool and what's going to land in the second? We'll have to, crash find, we'll just have to wait and see. Crash Bandicoot. That's, that, that's what I want. See, I'm only just remembering stuff, but... Crash Bandicoot, that would be awesome. Perhaps only. And we will see if there's any surprises that we get to cover on our website, specifically focusing on RPGs. Obviously, we will likely cover Horizon, even though it's definitely in that kind of fringe, tangential area. But we'll see if there's a Demon Souls or a new IP that we can't even anticipate announced that we get to get excited for specifically on a site front basis. So wait, we're not covering Crash Bandicoot on RPG site? Why, why am unless... I here? <laughs> <laughs> it might be a Crash Bandicoot RPG. You just form a party with his, his animal friends and <laughs> go to town. Like why not? Mario, that'd be good. Can you tell I've never played Crash Bandicoot? I don't know anything about it other than uh, jumping <laughs> on crates. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, I, I'm dodging past the fact that that had nothing to do with we're still free to talk about it. We've talked about Doom and other stuff here, so everything's on the table for this place. But as we look forward to that PS5 event, and we'll talk about it next week, that kind of covers it for news on this front. So a lot of looking forward for a lot of reasons that we've touched on, and then, of course, a lot of Xenoblade to really dig into this 70 to 120-hour game, and we'll, we'll revisit with my further impressions, George's first impressions, and maybe some future Connected talk. And then everything that 
unveils itself within the month of June, we'll obviously dive straight into. As always, you can find us. Yeah, it's going to be a crazy time. It's it's E3 only for three months long. What's not to like about that? Anyways, you can always listen to us here seemingly each week on the Tetracast. You can find us on Twitter at RPG Site. You can go to our main website, rpgsite.net, to find all the new trailers for like the new Dragon Quest game or uh, Crystal Chronicles Remastered. You can always find us at our Discord channel, which we do share on our Twitter from time to time. We do also have a YouTube and Facebook accounts at rpgsite.net. We do have a Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition review. We also have, we didn't talk about this in the main podcast, but James put up a nice little retrospective document uh, on the uh, on the PlayStation Vita and about his memories and looking back on what was in some people's mind, a very underrated console. And it's been kind of vogue to talk about it based on how it had a cameo in the most recent Last of Us 2 trailer. I don't know, James, if you had anything to append to your uh, to your Vita feature on the, up on that site? Uh, nothing for now, yeah. And then we also, George, did a, a basic review on Minecraft Dungeons, which seems like kind of a simple, fun, kind of diversionary game in a, in a little Diablo-like that you can play with your friends. I don't know if you had any further thoughts on Minecraft Dungeons. Yeah, I really should have talked more about this earlier, but I guess we've all got Xenoblade fever. Uh, Minecraft Dungeons, really fun. Uh, don't go into it expecting like too much, but if you go into it thinking, oh, I like Minecraft, I like a bit of dungeon crawling, then you're going to really enjoy it, like I did. There you go. And as always, we will talk to you next week about everything that is yet to come, and we'll see you then. Bye, everyone. Later.